0: Jack. Levi. The Book Club from Hell. Hello everyone, this is Jack with The Book Club from Hell, an online erotic Elon Musk roleplay community. Are you bored with today's superheroes? Not so interested in the travails of someone who can fly, or the struggles of the unnaturally strong? Well... What about people who are really good at running trains on time, producing more steel for less money, delivering value, innovating, being commercially agile, and making superhuman profits quarter on quarter? Now that's more like it. As it happens, someone has been writing such superhero fiction, and her name was Iron Rand. Born in St. Petersburg as Elissa Rosenbaum in 1905, Rand's family suffered during the Russian Revolution, Civil War, and under the Bolsheviks. Emigrating to the United States of America in 1926, Rand began work as a screenwriter in Hollywood, going on to publish plays, novels and non-fiction works, most notably The Fountainhead, and the subject of today's episode, the 1957, 1200-page doorstop Atlas Shrugged. It's a story which explores Rand's philosophy of objectivism, where Rand casts what are effectively commercially-minded superheroes and collectivist supervillains against one another in a dystopian America falling apart because of its lack of respect for industrialists and objectivists. Add to this a generous serving of Rand writing in her own sexual kinks and you've got an overly long, bizarre, but nonetheless entertaining novel on your hands. Now, on the subject of objectivism and paying respects to the generation of prophets, Levi and I have an announcement to make. We've got a Patreon account. The link to it will be included in this episode's description. So if you feel like we're adding value to your life, please consider thanking us with Hard Currency. Enjoy. I had to change how I take notes for this book compared to other books that we cover for the podcast because it's so long. This will be probably the main thing I complain about this entire podcast. The book is so long. (laughs) Yeah, it's absolutely not amenable to like, I don't know briefly summing it up chapter by chapter or something like that <laughs> at least not for this show um, yeah no, nah, chapter yeah. by chapter that would be an entire podcast season in and of itself <laughs> in which case like if you'd want a chapter by chapter just read the book yeah it's yeah. 1200 pages <laughs> have fun of like superhero fiction <laughs> it i really think it most closely resembles superhero fiction yeah much more than anything else because the characters all behave like superheroes or supervillains. And then you've got the mass of humanity, like the other, the 99% of the human race just scurrying around beneath their feet. Beneath the feet of the objectivist titans of industry, the rational superheroes. <laughs> it's basically like if Elon Musk was Superman, and instead of, instead of having all of Superman's powers, he was just really good at organising stuff and making cash. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think it is basically a a superhero a superhero story.
0: Yeah, and the super villains. Well, it's, it's like it's a morality play. It's a, well, a morality absolute brick of a novel, <laughs> in which there are two characters. There are three characters. There's the the mass of humanity as one. All the objectivist characters behave in more or less the same way, but it uh, can be quite amusing, and then all of. All of the scum of the earth, the irrational, all behave in the same way as well and deliver the same speeches. And they're my favourite part of the book, probably. They're just... As much as I will complain about Ayn Rand in the course of this episode, her ability to write characters who are just so detestable is incredible. Some of the characters, like Lillian, Hank Reardon's wife, is such an awful person. James Taggart is such a piece of shit. (laughs) (laughs) that's when she's at her best that and physical descriptions of people i've noticed that she she must have been a hardcore physiognomist (laughs) because you can immediately pick how good a character will be i mean how good morally of course based on how they look so if she'll (laughs) if she introduces a character and they're they're tall and they've got a a violent face. Everything in this book is violent and ruthless, if it's good. If they have a ruthless, violent, well-defined face with long lines that remind her of smokestacks of a well-run steel foundry, then you know that character is going to be an upstanding citizen. <laughs> all the gross characters will be like short, fat, with a big nose, and they stutter in their speech and their clothes all suck. <laughs> I've I've actually I've collected a lot of her physical descriptions of the main characters, and my theory just holds for. My theory holds for everyone except for Doctor Stadler, whom we'll discuss. Who, who used to be good, which is why he still has that resi- the residual good looks. But as the book goes on, he gets uglier and uglier.
2: <laughs>
0: so,
1: where should we start? What do you reckon? High plot. Plot summary, and then maybe set setting of like, what's the world? Yeah, let's,
0: like, have it, can you yeah, like sales pitch. say what Atlas Shrugged is? And then, we, yeah, then let's, we'll do a quick run through of the plot to give people a brief idea. It is not going to be an exhaustive description of the plot because that would take so long. No, 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 it's, it's 1,200 pages. <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, so Atlas Shrugged is, uh, is Ayn Rand's uh, magnum opus with regards to fiction, at least. And I think probably her entire career. Um, so it turns out, yeah, I, was okay. probably, I was looking at, um, I'm pretty sure that she did not write any more fiction after Atlas Shrugged. She just wrote all non-fiction yeah, afterwards. Um, yeah, which is really interesting. And I suppose it's it's a sci-fi summary of of her ethical outlook on the world. And um, it's also, I, I think it's also a, like a social critique, both of like where she came from. So she she came from Moscow, um, from like Soviet Russia, and also like a critique of certain aspects of what she saw in, in, uh, in the US. Um, and that's basically like pursuing one's self-interest um, and things like greatness, beauty, doing things just because it's it's awesome to do whatever the thing is without justifying it as like oh it's good for the world or it's good for this like social thing or it's good for society or something like that um versus like what she i guess thought of as like essentially uh well the way that i heard somebody put it was uh should you live your life for? Uh, uh, no, this is the way that she put it. She said, "Should you, for, for centuries, uh, societies have been arguing over, should you live your life uh, for God, or then it was like, should you live your life for society or for a community or something like that?" And she's like, "No, you should live your life for yourself, and that's it." Um, and so this—that's like the underlying theme of what she like what she thinks. Um, and it comes through in all of her characters um, and the entire like structure of the society that she's uh, that she's created.
0: Yeah, it's good of you to bring up her her Soviet origins because I do think that informs a lot of her worldview as like, naturally growing up in Soviet era Moscow would, and also the reception she received because. The Fountainhead, which was the novel preceding Atlas Shrugged and Atlas Shrugged. And Atlas Shrugged was published in the mid-50s. Yeah, 57. So Cold War. Uh, was Stalin 50? No, Stalin died in 55 or something. So it, it would have been um, uh, Khrushchev. So hi- height of the Cold War, when she, she released Atlas Shrugged, and the at least the Republican Party in the United States just went bonkers for this stuff. They love it. Ronnie Reagan, who, well, I mean, he ga- he came to the party pretty late because he I don't think he was around in 57, or at least not in politics. <laughs> he was really passionate about this book. I think in part, too, because during that period, many authors tended to lean left, and so you had this author who was saying just, fire-breathing right-wing stuff. And so this whole side of politics, also fire-breathing right-wing stuff that supported their particular brand of of politics yeah. enough. There are certain things that she disagreed with them on, particularly her antipathy towards religion. But they they milled around her because she was offering them an artistic and an intellectual framework within which to justify how they were already behaving. <laughs> it because it, it blows my mind that this book is as popular as it is. Because really, oh. <laughs> yeah, it it does because one is one is the length. Two is I think the the concept of it is a lot of fun. I was saying to you before we started recording just the the concept of the brightest minds in society going on strike and retreating to this valley in the mountains of Colorado and, like, trading with each other in gold and being really good objectivists is, is so good. That's If I'd heard it, I would have assumed it was a, a humorous novel. Ayn Rand is, a, in a few parts, quite funny, but I, she's not aiming to be funny. no, no. no. There's, there's that. There's the sheer strangeness of the concept. It when I say it's a superhero novel, it, it just straight up is the strangeness of, of the the like the book's narrative. Yeah, it's it's like it's superhero fiction, but about titans of industry. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs>
1: the,
0: then then there are certain aspects of it that are that are more subjective. But I, I've certainly heard these criticisms made by people other than me that. It's overwritten, repetitive, quite bloated. She keeps killing the pacing of the story by making a character deliver a 20-page speech about <laughs> the, the virtues of selfishness, which, like, if she didn't just keep doing it and make them deliver more or less the same speech, I'll be more forgiving of. And it, in short, it needed a few more editorial passes. There, there are numerous reasons why I'm just surprised well, I would be surprised in a vacuum that this book did it as well as it did, but I think she released it at just the right moment. You know, 50s Cold War, paranoia. She's got a great background story. A Russian woman who emigrated to the United States. She just hates communism. She hates the Bolsheviks. She's all about individuality and the free market. She, to her credit, and this is pretty wild, she learned English well enough, not only to get by, but to write books in it and she doesn't like i i'm sure if there were oddities of her english the editor probably would have picked them up but even then her english doesn't come across as that of a non-native speaker yeah i'm saying in a a long perhaps randian overlong way that (laughs) i think in large part the book's success is down to when it came out I don't think this book would never have found an audience. I just think it would have been much more niche than than it is in our timeline, in this branch of the multiverse. Because <laughs> this is one of the more mainstream books we've covered. Mainstream, as in people it's probably have the heard most of mainstream it, but book. Very no. few have read it. I guess it depends, like, Job,
1: (laughs) the Bible. We've read parts of the Bible that's pretty mainstream. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. That's pretty
0: mainstream. That's (laughs) the world's largest religion. (laughs) Yeah, probably the most. Soon to be supplanted by objectivism. (laughs) Oh, we should actually say, because I've used the term a few times, objectivism is Ayn Rand's philosophy, that initially using her novels she sought to explicate, so The Fountainhead, which was the novel before Atlas Shrugged, did so Atlas shrugged elucidates objectivist thought even more thoroughly I don't I read The Fountainhead quite a while ago I don't remember her going off into quite as many really just character monologues where they read to you from their script the virtues of objectivism and the tenets of objectivism but I I think it was in there but it was more woven into the plot And yeah after this one she just went straight up into writing Uh, non-fiction books about what objectivism is.
1: Yeah, and objectivism is, well, I think there's a number of parts to it, but at least as far as I've seen, there's two main parts. There's ethics um, and there's epistemology.
0: Um, Yeah, and And they're really hard to separate
1: in objectivism. Yeah, Um, and uh, the kind of main thrust of the ethics is that... um, you should live for yourself. Like, you shouldn't do anything for other people. You should, like, if you want to have a relationship, you have that relationship because you want it, Want to have that relationship, not because of some, I don't know, like, sense of duty or whatever to have it. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, like, being productive is, like, it's, is like... Mm-hmm. <laughs> probably the most important thing. That is like, just the best yeah, the thing. Yeah, thing like being productive, like creating art, creating architecture, creating industries and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> uh, so she loves engineering and shit like that. Um, and yeah. uh, and being good looking. And being good looking. And she thinks, and she, and I, I think this bridges between ethics and epistemology. Like she thinks that sort of like, a, how would you put it? Reason. I think the bridge between reason.
0: ethics and epistemology and objectivism is that the greatest good of a person is to act rationally yeah yeah so reason and, and rationality is in like her essential. telling rationality really equals acting as an objectivist <laughs> but and what what rationality means and we'll end up discussing this quite a lot because she does she illustrates this quite well i think with her characters like she she demonstrates how she probably should have told the rest of atlas shrugged in that she explained philosophical concepts using the plot Instead of grinding everything to a halt, it's like, oh, it's lecture time. <laughs> Francisco D'Anconi is going to tell us all about objectivism <laughs> for 30 pages. But being rational means recognizing objective reality. And she says human beings have access to objective reality, and a rational human will act in accordance with objective reality. And acting in accordance with objective reality naturally makes you behave in a certain way. It makes you behave in an ethical way towards others and, most importantly, towards yourself. And I think that's the real bridge between mm. objectivist ethics and objectivist epistemology. And when I say they're hard to separate, I think actually you just can't separate them in objectivism. Yeah, yeah. They're no, just they, outgrowths of the they, same thing. They,
1: uh, they uh, can't be separated. Um, yeah, no, I'd agree with that. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah, and so... I guess, sorry it's me. probably, yeah, at its core, epistemological, because without that tenet of human beings have access to objective reality, then you wouldn't know how you're rationally supposed to act. So it is at its core, I guess, just just an epistemological system from which she derives all of these ethical principles. Yeah, I wonder what came first.
1: I have a suspicion that maybe the ethics came first, and then she worked backwards I from think that. she... <laughs> to I mean, my guess is that
0: she grew up in yeah grew up in a repressive grey fairly unpleasant society <laughs> she, <laughs> so. she left moscow during the 50s which it was, was quite unpleasant. not a particularly fun time nor fun place to be i expect a lot of her epistemology is derived from those personal experiences and i don't say that to to say that they're wrong. I think working from that point of, okay, what do I not like, is a reasonable way to derive some, some ethical principles and then from that derive a broader worldview. So should we give a, a high-level, um, like, set up the story? Yeah, let's set up the story. And as, as we go through the story and meet characters, we can introduce the characters. Because a lot of these characters... They're sort of like Orwell characters in that they just exist to to illustrate or to communicate a particular idea. For example, Dagny Taggart, who's one of who's probably the main character of the novel, or who just is the main character of the novel. I don't need to say probably. Yeah, is an objectivist titan of industry. When it comes to running railroads, she's an absolute animal, just a monster. <laughs> Uh, she's she's optimised as fuck. She's been doing her cold showers every morning. She's been doing her high-intensity interval training. Um, and she is just an incredible businesswoman, but is being hamstrung by her shithead brother, who is who's the opposite of an objectivist. But these two characters, Dagny Taggart and her brother James Taggart, their role, I feel, is less to be compelling characters, which I didn't really find them to be, but more to illustrate tenets of objectivism so Dagny Taggart is is the objectivist hero whom we should model our behaviour on and look to as a model of good objectivist behaviour And conversely, James Taggart refuses to take responsibility for anything he's ugly, he's not very good at running things he always runs away from difficult problems, and he's the opposite of rationality because he he does see on some level what reality is, that <laughs> he needs to behave in a certain way to run Taggart Transcontinental, which is the the USA-wide railroad that that he and his sister run, but he doesn't behave in that way because it goes against his beliefs, which are incorrect beliefs.
1: Yeah, here's a uh... and the book, and just just for the context, like uh, it's interesting that. Um... James and Dagny are uh, like brother and sister, and they inherited uh, the the company from their uh, yeah. from their grand their grandfather built it. So it's kind of this so it was uh, Nat industrial. Their yeah, Nat Taggart was their grandfather. Um, yeah, so uh, it's like industrial American industrial aristocracy sort of vibes.
0: Yeah, and Iron Rand doesn't have a problem with inherited wealth, which I find interesting because. Yeah. Going into this book, I sort of expected that she would resent it, but she basically says, look, if you're rational and competent and you can handle it, yeah, fine, whatever. In- inherit your wealth. So that was something that surprised me. So the book opens with, with this situation where, take it transcontinental, has, it's been run by James and the board. <laughs> I think the board is just this, uh, this ambiguous mass of people. I don't even know how many people are on the board. But they've been making stupid decisions for ages. And I think Dagny Taggart... Uh, what is Dagny? Is she, like, COO or something like that? Uh, Dagny yeah, basically some, runs some the of entire yeah, railroad. Yeah,
1: operations or... Yeah. Something to that effect. Basically, 2IC who actually does everything uh, but isn't the actual CEO.
0: So I'm just looking for a quote that tells us about how Dagny looks because... She does look good, and that's really, really important. <laughs> so you c- keep um keep telling us about the start of the story. I'm just finding my quotes on how James and Dagny look. Okay, so while Jack is looking that up,
1: um, basically it's set in a futuristic America. Um, so it's a science fiction novel, and it's a uh, it's an America that is degrading. It's primarily set in New York, although Colorado is also another major um, part of the story, which we can get to. And uh, basically, for whatever reason, the society is corrupt, corrupted such that uh, all the most industrious people in the society
3: uh, are being
1: robbed (laughs) in, in various ways, in various sly ways by, by the state, essentially, or by, or by, um, appendages of the state. Um, and for some reason, the last, I think if the timeline's correct, something like 10 years or something, um, the most like industrious people, uh, all of a sudden are like retiring or disappearing and no longer working, refusing to work. Um, and there's a, uh, a meme in the zeitgeist, uh, a question that comes up, who is John Galt? And it's uh, supposed to sort of encapsulate the idea of like, well, I mean, I think there's maybe multiple meanings, but it is like, don't ask, uh, don't ask meaningless questions. And it's a kind of mark of like depression and uh, the lack of motivation of people to try to achieve things. Um, And yeah, so we get introduced to our main character, Dagny, who is an exceptionally brilliant, uh, I think she trained as an engineer or something in university. And she's, uh, you know, obsessed with trains, obsessed with engines, all that sort of stuff. Um, And she's basically trying to uh, save her, 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 her family's um railway company um from the brink of destruction as her incompetent brother uh, essentially seems to be doing everything he can to to drive it into the ground and so it's the yeah. unfolding of of her her uh, her challenge with with her brother but more broadly her her fight against um this sort of uh, spirit of Malaise in the society and the degradation of the society, and uh, all the things that she she has to do um, in her fight to do that to save her to save her yeah. family and company. as
0: yeah, and that's some aspects of Dagny's characterization become a bit more interesting when you see when you see her motivations for wanting to keep. Taggart Transcontinental alive because she feels this deep connection to Nat Taggart. Her so it was her granddad, the guy who set it up. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, or maybe great grandfather. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was grandfather
1: who set up. I'm pretty sure it's her grandfather.
0: Yeah, who set it up? She feels this deep need to do well by him. Yeah. And, and in, <laughs> so I guess I, maybe she's doing that for herself. Uh, she feels that she needs to live up to him in order to feel good about herself because it wouldn't be, it wouldn't make too much sense for her to do it out of some feeling of indebtedness to him.
1: No. You know, There's almost a, a eugenics part where he's like, it's almost like, yeah, we're awesome. We come from these like awesome families. Her and Antonio, Dan- to- what's his name? Antonio Danconia. Uh, No, I'm fucking De Anconia, yeah, yeah, De Anconia, uh, Francisco De De Anconia, where they're basically saying like, yeah, we're fucking super smart and shit, and our grandfather, and it's like, of course we're awesome. Look how
0: awesome our grandfathers were. (laughs) (laughs) No, there, there are a few moments in which I think that she, she believes strongly in a hereditary aristocracy of. Of, objectivist of competence, industry.
1: but clearly she doesn't think that it's of inherent. Competence. Inherent because she set up a uh, James Taggart to be just a completely incompetent scumbag. So she doesn't. I guess she doesn't necessarily yeah. think. Yeah, it's James,
0: in- inherited. James inherited all the bad bits. Yeah, of course. <laughs> like there, of every pair of alleles, Dagny got the good, <laughs> the good ones, and James got all the shit ones. <laughs> yeah. Of Dagny, I quote. Her legs, sculptured by the tight sheen of the stocking, its long line running straight over an arched instep, to the tip of a foot in a high-heeled pump, had a feminine elegance that seemed out of place in the dusty train car and oddly incongruous with the rest of her. She wore a battered camel's hair coat that had been expensive, wrapped shapelessly around her slender, nervous body. The coat collar was raised to the slanting brim of her hat. A sweep of brown hair fell back, almost touching the line of her shoulders. Her face was made of angular planes, the shape of her mouth clear-cut, a sensual mouth held closed with inflexible precision. She kept her hands in the coat pockets, her posture taut, as if she resented immobility and unfeminine, as if she were unconscious of her own body and that it were a woman's body. Yeah. So Dagny, at several points in this book... There's the realisation, and again, characters have this realisation multiple times, where they, they initially just see Dagny as sexless, almost this, this object of will that just gets, gets trains running on time. That's what Dagny is. And then every now and then she puts on nice clothes and everyone's blown away at how good Dagny looks. Yeah, and there's this running
1: theme of her being... Uh... Not only like viewed as not in feminine, but actually uh, a man. Like people mistaking her for a man or her thinking of herself as basically a man. Um, which actually is a. I mean, hmm, to the degree that is she Mary Janeing, Mary Janeing, you know, like inserting herself as the main character.
0: It's kind of. Dagny's 100% kind of is, a self
1: insert. Except that obviously <laughs> She's Ayn Rand. definitely
0: a self insert. Ayn Rand wasn't
1: a. Uh, an engineer, <laughs> or whatever, um,
0: or a, you know, like a Iron Man wasn't many things, but <laughs> but in terms <laughs> of like da- Dagny is basically the the dream fulfillment. Yes, and and I imagine that she would probably just say, "Yeah, that's I'm not saying right. it against it. Like, <laughs> okay, you you want to write an idealized version of yourself into your book? You go for it, and
1: or, or what she, want, she what she uh, like what she uh, aspires to and importantly like uh there was this one because i've been reading about ayn rand's life just in preparation for this episode um there was this one instance where um somebody called her a man tried to call um ayn rand a man and as an insult and she's like that's the greatest compliment anybody's ever (laughs) ever paid me like (laughs) she was really obsessed with uh not necessarily being a man, but I think that she had so many hang-ups about like the way that women were treated um, and conceptualized with like in terms of intellectualism and stuff um, that she really, really uh, idealized kind of uh, masculinity.
0: Yeah, and once we've gone over the plot, we should discuss her her view of women because I've heard this book described as very sexist and anti. Woman. And I really? don't think that's quite I, got the fair. Opposite. I think it is it's more complicated than that.
1: I, I thought it probably warrants like, um, us talking about it. Anyway, yeah, we can talk about that after we go through the plot a bit. But yeah, I
0: I almost got the opposite view. I thought it was like anyways, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, it's it's different. You I've also got a quote here describing how James Taggart looks. So A Mirror hung in the niche behind the portable bar. He caught a glimpse of his own figure, the tall body distorted by a sloppy, sagging posture, as if in deliberate negation of human grace, the thinning hair, the soft, sullen mouth. So that's James Taggart. Remember the sharply defined lines of Dagny? Well, James is pudgy, he's balding, he's got a bad posture. And this goes for just every (laughs) character. If they're good, they look good. If they're bad, they look bad. (laughs) We should probably also mention, so one, one example of how James keeps screwing up Taggart Transcontinental is he, he decides on this line into Mexico uh, called the San Sebastian line, a rail line. And this is to supply the San Sebastian mines, which are copper mines, started by Francisco de Anconia, who's, who's going to be another really important character. Childhood friend of Dagny's, childhood acquaintance of James's, he runs Dianconio Copper, which is the world's largest corporation, and he's just good at everything. There is, he's he's quite a boring character yeah. because there's just <laughs> he's nothing just he's not yeah.
1: good at. Literally, just does something the first time. The first time he does it, he's just he's better than everybody else.
0: <laughs> he, he just he smashes it out of the park. He does. He he's a bit more interesting in his role as basically getting, of of being in love with Dagny and just watching her move through a succession of other men, which uh, we'll, we'll get to Ayn Rand's <laughs> sexual hangups or what look like her sexual hangups based on this book, but also other books of hers that I've read. We'll get to that after the, the plot synopsis. Cause that's, that's pretty funny. And oh, I've got to wait a sec. Yeah. So anyway, James, Francisco de Anconia tells everyone that he's, he's made these copper mines in San, and named them the San Sebastian Mines in Mexico. And they're going to be incredible. They're going to be the best copper mines ever. No one bothers checking what he's done. Everyone just starts buying up, I think, bonds of um, de Anconia copper. All of the, the parasites of society put their money secretly into the bonds. And James Taggart has such high confidence in Francisco that he just builds a train line there, even though Dagny keeps telling him, no, Mexico is a people's state, and they're going to nationalise that line in a second. They spend tonnes of money on it, and yeah, eventually Mm. Mexico just nationalises the mines and the railroad, Mm. and so Taggart Transcontinental loses money on it. Francisco de was actually lying to everyone about how good the mines were, and so the people's (laughs) state nationalises just a pile of rocks and then starts demanding reparations from Francisco d'Anconia <laughs> because he misled them into thinking that they were gonna, <laughs> they were going to uh, requisition from him something valuable.: I found that part very funny. <laughs> yeah, really I'm not sure if part. it was intended to be comedy, but uh, there are I a few moments when Ayn Rand is it's, it's very funny.: It's almost like: It's satirical. So, the benefit it's of the satirical. doubt, She does it a f- Yeah She does it a few times where she's quite funny. In a v- In a very particular way, but genuinely amusing. Francisco de Anconia. Nobody ever wondered whether Francisco de Anconia was good-looking or not. It seemed irrelevant. When he entered a room, it was impossible to look at anyone else. His tall, slender figure had an air of distinction, too authentic to be modern, and he moved as if he had a cape floating behind him in the wind. People explained him by saying that he had the vitality of a healthy animal, but they knew dimly that that was not correct. He had the vitality of a healthy human being, a thing so rare that no one could identify it. He had the power of certainty. Yeah, so from that description, we know that Francisco de Anconia, despite what it might appear in the first probably half of the book, he is a good character. He's a good person. And at this stage of the book, right at the start, he's this dissolute Multi-billionaire, well, it doesn't specify exactly how much money he has, but I assume he's a multi-billionaire if he's the owner of, yeah. and assuming, I, I presume, largest stockholder of the largest company in the world. He's got tons of money, but he's just this dissolute playboy who floats around the world having parties, wasting money on stuff, having sex with lots and lots of beautiful women. But every now and then just making brilliant business decisions as well. So people still know that he's, he's got it, hence why they <laughs> trusted him so much with the San Sebastian Mines. Mm. But the, char- the character arc of Francisco will become more complicated. should probably also introduce Hank Reardon here because Hank Reardon is another very important character. Was there the, was there anybody else first, before? No, the Reardon second that came, that came that would the second of Dagny's conquest. Is there anybody other than Reardon who who
1: who comes up uh, early in the book? Um, so we've got
0: uh, oh, there's Lillian Dag- Reardon's wife, Dagny, which is, and she's one of my favourite characters. D-
1: Dagny James. Oh, obviously uh, there's a minor character who actually I think plays a more important role than maybe the amount of time he gets. But uh, what, what was his name? His name was. Uh, William Is This Eddie Willis. Eddie Willis. Yeah, he's like um He's really important. Yeah, he's like uh, um Dagny's like confidant and Little bitch. Little bitch and, and, and they were they were they were like childhood. He's his beta orbiter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Special
0: assistant. He's been he's been orbiting her since childhood, hoping that if he's been if he's nice to her she'll let him sniff the chair she sits on or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> He's, a, he's an important character, I think. When we get to discussing rationality versus intelligence, Eddie's a really good character for digging into that. Yeah, so he's... Because he's rational. He always... He sees reality. And even when he doesn't like it, he doesn't look away. Yeah. But he doesn't have the, in, the intellectual firepower that people like Dagny or Hank Reardon or Francisco have. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so maybe he's the only other important person because he ends up playing an important sort of plot role. Um, yeah, but yeah, he's so he's basically the two. I he, he's like uh, childhood friends, and uh, then ends up being like inside of Tate Transcontinental, like um, basically Dagny's like personal assistant or executive assistant sort of vibes.
0: <laughs> yeah, and he's one of the few people in the organization that she can trust to get anything done because. As you said earlier, there are fewer and fewer competent people in America. And at this stage, no one knows why. They just, it's, it just seems to be getting harder to find them. And the, the ones, the few who are competent keep mysteriously, leave, mysteriously leaving. So for example, Owen Kellogg is a minor character, but he's a competent worker at Taggart Transcontinental and he, he just resigns one day. And Dagny's offering him pay rises, promotions, saying, take your pick of the jobs. I want you to stay on because I can trust you to get things done. And hes He just won't take it. In typical superhero yeah. novel fashion, <laughs> he's superhero. very mysterious, going like, no. I cannot tell you why I've made this choice, Dagny, but you must trust me. I don't do it out of hate. I only do it out of love. No, I
1: must. <laughs> it's like it's a I fucking no choice batman nothing that you can say batman dialogue yeah
0: <laughs> yeah it's very batman-esque that's sure <laughs> and he he pops up a few times throughout the book in different roles like he's working as a manual laborer while i think it was i think it's mr moen who's some shit idiot irrational business owner who screwed over dagny And he's complaining about uh, how unfair it is that all of these businesses are moving from the East Coast to Colorado and it's just because there's business activity in Colorado and not here, well, they need to stay here to give us a chance. And Owen Kellogg's just like kind of laughing at him while he's looking really, really good stacking steel girders or something like that. Yeah, rippling muscles. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she she spends a lot of time describing how good he looks. Working a way manually <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway Hank Hank Reardon is probably one of the is, is another really important character so he's another he's another superhero and a good a good one so he's he's a steel magnate and he he just can pour steel like no one else. It's unreal. when you order something from Hank Reardon, he just fucking delivers. And this is in contrast with Oren Boyle, which give, give, <laughs> even give, yeah, like, literally even the given name, yeah the, the aesthetics <laughs> yeah, of yeah. the two names. <laughs> Hank Reedon versus Oren Boyle. and Oren Boyle is also short and fat and ugly, whereas Hank Reeden's really tall with a square Masculine jaw, really stoic. manly looking. Yeah. Oren Boyle runs I think it's, it's like a so- Associated Steel, and he's a shithead. He's just full of excuses, never delivers anything on time, blames everything except himself. It's in stark contrast with Hank Reardon and Oren Boyle throughout this book, more at the start, maybe the first half of the book, because Oren Boyle fades in significance as the book goes on. But for the first half of the book, he's just trying everything he can think of to get in the way of Hank Reardon making lots of steel and eventually Reardon metal. Just trying to use his government contacts, to, to throw obstacles in the path of Hank. Hank is really important because he comes up with this metal called Reardon metal, and it's this green-blue super metal which is lighter and stronger than steel, and initially no one believes in it because it's untested, but also Oren Boyle uses his contacts in the press in Washington, with the State Sciences Institute, which you know you can't trust because it's a state institution, it's there in the name. <laughs> All of these organisations cast doubt on the safety of reardon metal. I think the unions try to um, try to prevent their workers from working with reardon metal, so it's really hard to find people to to make things with the metal, and that a lot of that is Oren Boyle's doing because. He's not good at competing on his merits. He's only good at at trying to undermine his competition. And the plot arc of Hank Reardon is interesting because Hank Reardon is obviously highly intelligent and in the area of business, very rational. He sees reality as it is and acts on it, which is why he's such a good businessman. But when it comes to interpersonal relations, he's quite irrational. And this is one of... I think his plot, his character arc, is one of the places where Iron Rand demonstrates that rationality can exist in one sphere of of your life. In the case of Hank Reardon's in his business, but not in another. Interpersonally, he's quite irrational. And through the character of Hank Reardon she shows us that we really should acquire, we should come upon a unity, a yeah, yeah, unity of rationality throughout our lives. And he comes to. Be a rational man in his private life as well as in his business life through having sex with Dagny. I should say Dagny just fucks some sense into him. Yeah, it's uh,
1: <laughs> yeah, that bit's no, when I say that,
0: I'm not yeah. exaggerating. Like his personal transformation of being pushed around by his wife Lillian, who is just revolting, she's such a good character, she's <laughs> so unpleasant, uh, and being pushed around by his family. Who live rent free in his house and just constantly complain about him, and talk about how he's greedy and selfish and never thinks of others and only thinks about business and how he's not. I think his Hank Reardon's brother Philip keeps donating to the Friends of Global Progress, yeah. which is just this cartoonish charity organization in the book. Yeah, and just I think Reardon do nothing but complain about Hank Reardon while taking his money. Reardon, all, yeah, which is pretty just funny. like
1: paying for everything for these uh. These people's lives, especially his brother.
0: <laughs> and Hank was also really, he's pretty anti sex initially. So Hank's, Hank, as befits all red blooded, square jawed men, has just an animalistic sex drive. And probably just a massive dick.
1: Huge
0: dick. Yeah. Huge huge, I mean, she did not describe his dick. dimensions. But I imagine he's very generous. What's that word that she really fucking likes? Angular. <laughs> she likes things that are Yeah, everything's angular. Ang- there are a few iron red words like angular, violent, ruthless, unyielding. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I remember all, when she all described... All um, adjectives could be used to describe his pain. <laughs> unyielding. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but he's got... He, <laughs> he's got this huge sex drive but feels ashamed of it And Lillian keeps telling him that sex is an animal act And it makes people no better than animals Or it, it demonstrates that people are no better than animals And Lillian is very anti-objectivist And she also, she's just constantly trying to talk him down Talk him out of making any big business decisions Constantly mocking him mm. But Hank, Hank meets Dagny and eventually they have sex and she becomes his mistress. And Dagny, through just probably how mind-blowing her brains. sex is, teaches, teaches him to accept that basically if it feels good, it can't be bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then having realised that, that his, his sex life with Dagny is in no way shameful he he undergoes this profound transformation and becomes the, the objectivist Superman. So
1: those... Um, so maybe I'll just note here that the book is split into three major parts. or three parts. It, it essentially... It could have been written as three separate books, each of which would be about 400 pages long and would be... Mm. Suffi- so you could have read it as a trilogy. She could have released it as a trilogy. And in fact, there is a... Um, there's a film series that is split up as a trilogy along the three parts. Um, and
3: uh,
1: I, I, hmm. I think if you are going into the, into it, I would, uh, I would encourage people, if you say, if you, any of our listeners are going to potentially read this book, um, think of it more as like a trilogy that way it, it might seem a little bit less like intimidating then you can you can just stop reading after the first part <laughs> if you're no longer interested. Um, but yeah, so she's basically the first part. Which uh, what's the first part called again? It's called like um, non contradiction. Uh, the first like part is, got it in front of me. Yeah, the first part is called non contradiction. The second part is called either or non
0: contradiction.
1: Yeah, and the third part is called um, ASA, which. Um, in objectivist epistemology is Ayn Rand's idea of uh, the law of identity. So she's borrowing heavily from like first order, second order logic. Um, anyways, I found it really weird that she named named it that, but anyways. Um, <laughs> um, the first part so is gorgeous. basically setting up the world. It's like 400, 400 pages of essentially world building and character building. And while she don't like I got to the end of the first part and felt like okay I have a really rich sense of like the characters and there's like this over, there's like this strong sense of like there's all these really highly productive people like Dagny like trying to do things like build businesses and all that sort of stuff and like the society is closing in on like closing in around them I got this like strong sense of these people are, are like slowly suffocating They're like a, a mouse in a cage, like getting away from a snake or something. And, and I think she did a really good job of doing that. And basically like the, the last chapter of the first part, like sets up this like kind of cliffhanger of like, Oh, they're, you know, making this breakthrough and on, on like a, a thing that they get interested in, which we can talk about. Um, And then I almost feel as though like it was the second and third part where like the the story like it's still very long, but there was more movement through the story rather than like
0: as much world building. And in terms of the plot movement, that's one of my biggest complaints about this book, is that when she when she kind of forgets that she wants to just lecture you on what objectivism is, she actually paces the book quite well. It moves along nicely. I think every conversation is probably about 50% longer than it needs to be because they tend to repeat themselves <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. a lot. And while, and when I say that, the conversations are almost invariably between an objectivist and a non-objectivist. So it'll be like uh, Hank Reardon talking with someone sent by the government to demand that Hank Reardon sign over or donate the formula to Reardon Metal for the good of the country and for the good of humanity and this this person sent by the government will just start talking mm. about how, mm. in our time, there's no longer any room for ideals or for heroes. You must be practical, and you must acknowledge the situation that you are placed in, and you must act in accordance with uh, with practical goals. And there and then they'll start saying like, and anyway, there is no such thing as truth. There are only interpretations. And then Hank Renn will start going. Or, try to pour me a ton of steel without firm rules, and pull out some some objectivist nuggets of wisdom, many of which I actually quite liked. Like the whole thing about <laughs> yeah, pour me you know, x x amount of metal without reference to rules. Uh, that uh, that makes sense. like that's it's hard to argue with. But the problem is, like She will make that point of, uh, okay, Hank Reardon is rational and this person talking is irrational. And you have your fun of watching, again, her very well-written, unpleasant characters come up against the brick wall of an unyielding objectivist. But then she'll repeat herself and it just goes on for too long. These, these conversations need to be cut down. But even with those <laughs> overlong conversations, there is this sense of forward momentum. Yeah. But then maybe the worst part of the book is she just grinds everything to a halt and has a character deliver a monologue for tens of pages, and it's just painful. It, it kills the pacing. The book feels so disjointed because of it. And I'm more irritated with Ayn Rand's editor. Like, whoever edited this book, I don't know what they were doing. So clearly Ayn Rand can't self-edit, and that's fine. <laughs> it, plenty of good authors can't self-edit. And that the job of an editor is to say, look, you don't need this. We need to get rid of it. I don't know what the fuck this editor was doing. Just went on smoko for however long this book took to edit. <laughs> Probably just like, it got. Maybe the editor was, was not an objectivist. He was sent this tome and looked at it and was like, I can't be fucked. I'm going on holiday. Comes back in six weeks, just sends the thing back without any amendments. Goes, yep, Ayn Rand, mate. It's perfect. Just publish this. Nailed it. Like,. I don't know what the fuck they were doing. They just did not do what Ayn Rand hired them to do. Maybe she just like apparently she was quite a difficult person. Maybe she just I, I hired an she unbelievably she just, difficult. She just person. hired an editor that she knew would tell her what she wanted to hear and not what she needed to hear. <laughs>
1: <laughs> like she's she venerates being uncompromising. Like this is this is like a key part of yeah. <laughs> of her entire philosophy. It's like no do the thing that you think is the best thing to do and don't compromise on that. Don't fuck around with any of these like plebs
0: that want to like cut you down. So yeah, this is like, <laughs> like obviously. The thing is, she and was this is one of the sure. problems with her philosophy is you could equally say that about the editor telling her, no, you need to change this. Yeah, both of them are just like, <laughs> not
1: backing down. So long, as, so
0: long as there is only one actor in the world with any sort of, uh, any sort of capacity to change the world around them, objectivism works as soon as you have two who might have differing points of view it it becomes a lot more complicated (laughs) it's like trying
1: to get objectivists to like that's probably the worst bit about
0: the book (laughs) is that she keeps have she keeps just grinding the plot to a halt so she can tell you about how clever her philosophy is and those parts i just hated they're so bad they they really hurt how good the book is because like, she could have had just one or two of these speeches, because they tend to be just the same. But she just can't help herself; she just she needs so many of them. Yeah, this was. Mm.
1: Anyways, so it gets so back to the plot. End of part one. Yeah. Basically, yeah. and Oh, so <laughs> no, there was one really important part about like part one.
0: How about we bring up all of the different some of the regulations like the anti-dog eat dog rule and the equalization <clears> of opportunity Maybe build. I this think I think I've got to set a little bit more co- co- a little co- co- a bit more co- Pl- context
1: just uh give me I'll, I'll take yeah. like 30 seconds <laughs> um, so one of the key things they're trying to do is uh build a railway into Colorado in order to supply this guy named Ellis Wyatt with uh basically trains for his oil field oil fields. Dagny wants the rails made out of reared metal. And in particular, there's a bridge that is made out of reared metal and it's like cheaper and it's lighter than a steel bridge. And they end up running the train on this train line at a hundred miles an hour instead of 60 miles an hour. And they do it with like more carts than normal and uh, all this sort of stuff.
0: Yeah. And, then at the end of... And Dagny and Hank Reardon ride in the locomotive just to prove how much they believe in Reardon. Yeah, and then, and then the only other major
1: part part one plot part that I, I think, unless you think there's any other plot important thing to set up, is that in their affair, uh, Dagny and uh, Hank end up going on, like, a week-long, like joyride through whatever state wisconsin or something and it's like really run down there are closed factories closed mines and they go to one in particular an old car factory and they like search through it and they end up finding a motor or the designs for a motor like the 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 remnants of a motor and some like designs where the motor is like outstanding, it's like some new technology that's just, you know, imagine like fusion or something like stable cold fusion or something like that. This amazing motor with unbelievable energetic properties that, you know, if Tag- Dagny had this motor for her trains, it would revolutionize trains. It would revolutionize aviation and revolutionize like the entire economy. And that's kind of like one of the closing things towards the end of part one. Um Yeah. Were there any other major plot points? And then we can get into some of the
0: themes that come up in part one. In terms of Ellis White, I just want to mention that he's basically fracking. Like his yeah, shale shale his right. way of, um, Yeah, the whole thing is just shale oil. I just love it that one of the, the main characters in this, his superpower is basically <laughs> fracking. <laughs> it's <just> so good. <laughs> Those are the parts of the book that I really liked. Just how, how funny that is. It's just such a good concept.
1: And again, because he's an objectivist, like, Ellis White's just... Oh, yeah, and he's really good. He's just an an animal. Like, he's really fucking good at everything that he does. He basically saves Colorado, Colorado, whatever. Yeah.
0: Yeah, in terms of other stuff, like, there are are plenty of quite funny things, like the regulations that, for example, the Association of... I think the Association of Railroads are saying, which is basically a union, put together the anti-dog-eat-dog rule... To choke out competition. The government implements the equalization of opportunity bill, which among other things basically just nationalizes the output of Hank Reardon's steel mills. Yeah, and in like really <laughs> really
1: perverse ways, like um What was what was one of the ways they did this? It? Like
0: yeah, they uh, introduced something like a, lo- a lot of the stuff the government does is again, it's pretty funny actually. And it's the the terms they couch there. Like effectively just theft in, is <laughs> really funny.
1: It was the Equalization of Opportunity Act where they had to, like, Reardon was expected to give all his customers equal opportunity. So he'd get his customer list and he'd have to give them all the same amount of...
0: No, that's, it? Called, that's called the fair share. Oh, law. yeah, later on, yeah. <laughs> and what was it? Everyone has to get a fair what share. What was the equalization so of opportunity? After, after the month, that resounding that success of the first... Well, I think it's the fair share law came because you had the everyone was or the media, the sort of the state science apparatus and Washington were all trying to kill off the John Galt line, which was the line to the rail line that Dagny was building to supply Colorado, and she named it the John Galt line because everyone keeps saying who is John Galt, and it's built with and metal, but once, there, once there's... once this such a resounding success in the first, um, you wouldn't call it a maiden voyage. I don't know what the equivalent of a maiden voyage is for a train. But the train's maiden voyage on this new, this new line, everyone suddenly wants Riordan Man. I think it's just called the first run. Because they now see, oh, it's so good. They just good. call it the first run in the book. Yeah, first run, The first I guess. run of the train. Yeah, after the first run. And it's after the first run that, um, that uh, Riordan and Dagny have sex. So they, they dominate the world with their engineering capacity and then have sex. And Randy and sex scenes are really something. They're all <laughs> I about, really like, like them. <laughs> they're very competitive, highly competitive sex scenes.
1: Yeah, not sure if they're, like, really... There's an element of... Um, there's definitely a lot of, like, hate-fucking, or maybe not hate-fucking,
0: like, a strong mixture of emotions. <laughs> I... I am very, very confident in saying, and this is also based on my experience of reading The Fountainhead, Ayn Rand really liked being treated roughly. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, 100%. I guarantee yeah, yeah. she liked being slapped in the face, spat on, held down. She, all of the sex scenes in her books are basically like a woman is found by a powerful objectivist man who just takes what he wants, which is more than a little bit rapey. And initially, but she, she doesn't like it, it so. but, but, but <laughs> she, she, she wants it she to be as to close to
1: rape as possible without actually, <laughs> she, like, you know, Dagny. No, Dagny pulled her arm 100% and smiled. Iron <laughs> Rand had
0: had. Yeah, like, Iron Rand one hundred percent had a rape fantasy. Like in Atlas Shrugged, actually, the sex scenes are more consensual than in the Fountainhead. In oh, the in the Fountainhead, there is actually. There's rape one scene insane, in, isn't it? In in, yeah. in in the fountainhead particularly, I think it's Dominique Francon. I I think that's mm. her name. Yeah, yeah, Is just straight up raped by whatever the name of the the really good architect is. But Rock. in the process of basically Howard just Rock. being raped, she learns that it. She's actually really liking it. And <laughs> like, I think this is where a lot of the accusations of misogyny against Iron Rand come from. <laughs> I don't think I don't, she's not she misogynistic. Was being misogynistic. She's not I misogynistic. think Ayn Rand true. was just really turned on by the idea of being forcibly fucked by a powerful... I think she now. also,
1: like... I don't know what feminism was like in the US back in the 50s, honestly, but I think she's fighting against, like, sexual repression. Just saying, like, sex is good. Sex is a good part of life.
0: Yeah, that's, and that's an interesting thing about Ayn Rand's writing. And another reason why... The embrace of her by, for example, the Reagan administration is in some ways understandable because she said plenty of things that they do like, but she also said plenty of things that they definitely wouldn't have liked. So for example, her antipathy towards Christianity, and she was very pro-sex. That Basically, if the sex is good, then you can cheat on people, whatever, have lots and lots of sex with lots of different people. It's just polyamorous. If it is you experiencing joy in the world, she was polyamorous
1: and some of the men that she slept with had wives and I think she was completely unapologetic about it.
0: <laughs> yeah, her life got pretty weird where she basically had these groups of like a circle of objectivist acolytes that she just moved through fucking one after the other. She's <laughs> she a just people. She definitely started an objectivist <laughs> sex cult. That's so funny. <laughs> yeah, maybe she was like one of few women
1: who've like started something akin to a sex cult. <laughs> That's really funny.
0: Yeah, so a uh, good on her for that. She didn't give a
1: fuck, man. She just she's sent landed no, the free, she, motherfuckers. She really yeah, we are.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I yep. guess this is just my bias. It, looking at pictures of her, it looks like she'd smell like cigarettes. Oh, and I don't fucking no, yeah! No Apparently, shit. other people did. I bet she. She looks like she smelled like an ashtray. I mean, those are
1: uh, people back then just smoking all the time. That was probably back in the era when like doctors would
0: recommend smokes, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, smokes <laughs> cigarettes to make you healthy. And- Everyone in this book is just constantly smoking darts. <laughs> so one of the things that I really In fact in fact a cigarette brand is a major <laughs> Yeah, point. yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. The dollar sign and the cigarette. <laughs> <laughs>
0: she yeah. No, she she loved forcible sex and cigarettes. I think those are probably the two mm. guiding lights of her life. So um maybe I will say
1: like, okay, so going into the book, um, I mean not going into the book, but like throughout the uh first part of the book in particular well i think maybe setting up um francisco and dagny and ridden in particular um they're into like metallurgy Mm -hmm. and engineering and that sort of stuff um i really like that because i really like engineering and shit (laughs) like um and i like uh yeah like she was basically just like jacking Levi off. <laughs> like, yeah, fucking engineering. Yeah, fuck yeah, fucking buildings, trains, and shit. <laughs> there was one like, particular. I, I, was I think just like the best scene of the on. book is the
0: first run. The first run of the train on the um, the John Galt line is, I think, the best part of the book because that's where it's exciting. They're talking yeah. about how fast the train's going, and when they go over the reared and metal bridge, mm-hmm. which is this new design that can only be built with reared and metal. Mm-hmm. She makes a comment about how the only thing that's keeping the you know these tons and tons and tons of locomotive afloat above this this valley, of human ideas put into the world. And when I read that, I thought, yeah, that's that's really fucking cool. I like that Riordan and Dagny
1: got on the train, not just as a plot point, but so leading up to the first run all their detractors were saying like, Oh, this council of like the national council of metallurgy or whatever, or the national council of, I don't know, like trains or something, uh, denouncing this, uh, you know, it's dangerous and, or whatever. And they were like to Riordan or Dagny, Hey, um, how do you know it's going to work? Like, you know, how are you going to prove or how are you going to um, assure people that it's safe? And I think Reardon said in response to a question to that, to that effect, just said, well, I'm going to, I'm going to be on it myself. And he got on himself and it, it,
0: yeah, that was pretty cool.
1: And it goes back to that old, uh, engineering, um, like the idea of skin in the game, you know, like if you're making a decision, then you should have, uh, you should bear the consequences of that decision. not making decisions that um where like you can't where you can like get out of accountability and uh the old engineers from like was it like rome and babylon and stuff um like builders architects bridge builders um they were expected to like be there at the opening of the structure (laughs) so like you know like the roman bridge builder would have to stand under the bridge or something with his family for like or, like, live under the bridge for a week, um, some shit like that, so that it put their skin in the game, so if you fuck up, like, you're gonna die. And I think Hammurabi, or maybe it was Hammurabi or somebody else had, had this thing, it's like, if you build a house, and then the house uh, collapses and kills the son of the owner of the house, then the son of the builder will also be killed. You know, those sorts of things. So I, I think that, like, yeah, like, what she's getting at is important. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of funny the way that she characterizes everything. Yeah. It's basically everybody in the state and the government or people who are lackeys of the state, like James Taggart, are basically doing everything they can to get out of accountability and, like, parasitize all the yeah. objectivist characters. And then all the objectivist characters is basically, like, Put their money where their mouth is, do the shit, are super awesome, basically superheroes. And then just like get these six scenes where they're like going over a bridge or whatever, 100 miles an hour for the first time, all this sort of stuff.
0: Yeah. And as much as I complain about Ayn Rand's writing, the scene where they are on the train going over the bridge was that was cool. That was a lot of fun. And I think you've also got to give a. I would also say the scene, the scene you brought up where you said um, Hank Reardon says, oh, I, I believe it'll be safe because I'm going to be on that train. There was a press conference, and that was a really funny scene because all of the journalists there had been constantly talking down um, Hank Reed and Dagny Taggart. I think one of them, I think it was Bertram Scudder, who was ugly, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> had a radio panel, and it was a it was a debate on something like. Is Reardon Metal an evil threat to public safety or something like that? It's something just so comically weighted against Reardon Metal. And then Dagny and Hank Reardon go to this press conference where they're going to talk about the first run of this train. And Dagny only talks about the engineering side. That just gives a bunch of dry engineering schematics in response to all questions. And then Hank Reed stands up and starts talking about how much money he's going to make and how he's going to a fortune. just charging as much as I he can for real metal. I thought, I thought that was so funny.
1: Yeah, so it's interesting. So her, her characterization of um, basically the people, or the, not just the people, the characters, but the classes of people or the, the groups of people that she doesn't like. So she doesn't like journalists, the journalistic class. She doesn't like the state no. itself. And she doesn't like, uh, I guess, crony capitalists, I suppose, um, who are sort of in bed with the state. And she doesn't like, what I, as far as I can tell, basically like academics, but n- not necessarily like the intelligentsia per se, but the, the ones that are just like, uh, like professors and just...
0: I think a good yeah. way to put it in modern terms is you think about... There's a, there is a sharp demarcation between academics... Who come up with new ideas and academics who look for things to describe as problematic yeah, and problems, leave it as leaders yeah. and I think the latter class are the people that she really doesn't yeah like. and, and, and I don't
1: either. And, and then and then also like people in like who hang off um, like the productive people like you know their sc- scabby family members so and I, I also hmm, I also don't think she likes unions very much. <laughs> Oh, fuck, so no, she really does not like. I think unions. here's the int- there are so
0: <laughs> many really funny descriptions of union people. Basically, all people in unions in this book are these like hulking, muscly, mute Bugs. men who yeah. just smash things, shoot people, set things on fire. But she does. She it, she doesn't like. Animals. She doesn't
1: like unions, but she does like workers. I think you could make a strong case that she likes workers. Oh,
0: she likes workers. She a likes lot.
1: workers. She doesn't like unions.
0: And I think that's where, that's where the character of Eddie Willers will be really good to discuss because he's the sort of person who's not an objectivist superhero because he's not smart enough to do the things that Dagny, for example, can do. But he is rational. And so she has a deeply hierarchical view of the world where people like Eddie Willers exist to be led by people like Dagny and Hank Reardon and they can be very useful to those people, but ultimately they need those objectivist heroes. Whereas the objectivist heroes don't actually need people like Eddie Willis.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's actually a, a line where she's uh, arguing with the unions who are trying to say like, we're not going to let our workers work for you. And she's saying like, fine, sign a contract saying that, you know, none of our union workers will work for you. And she sort of challenges them to like, <clears throat> she, she says like, basically I'm able to man a train. I can run the train myself, but your union, your, your, your workers can't run a train track. <laughs> and so she's saying like, I don't need them. They'll come and work for me um, because they want to.
0: Um, Yeah. Superhero, basically. (laughs) I think what she's saying there is in large part a response to Marxism. So later in the book, she describes two types of, she calls them um, mystics. These people who are anti-rational, anti-objectivist. And you have mystics of, I think, of the spirit. And that's basically Christians or religious people. And mystics of muscle, who are Marxists mystics of muscle. And in the in <laughs> so. the part that you described where Dagny Taggart is telling the union members or the union leaders, look, I can I can run a train myself, which is what your men can do, but I can also design say a train line and make it run and your men can't do that. And I felt like this was a direct this uh, very intentionally and pointedly contradicting what Marx and Engels said where they believed that the origin of value is in manual labour. And what Ayn Rand is saying through self-insert Dagny Taggart is that no, ultimately actually value comes from people thinking and creating new ideas and then putting them into the world. And yes, it's useful to have people who can physically labour to instantiate those ideas, but it's actually it's much harder and ultimately more important for someone to have those ideas first. Yeah,
1: there's a. I, I think yeah, you've, you've nailed it. Um, that's exactly what's going on. And there is this. I think it's probably a false dichotomy, but, um, you know, like dust capital. That was
0: exactly what I wanted to say. Yeah, yeah, dust capital, dust
1: labor, like does the capital need the labor or does labor need the capital more like who's more important and it's like the she's coming from soviet russia and marxism is very explicitly like the capitalists can't do anything without labor ultimately through the law of imputation like you sort of recursively go back from every single product in the economy eventually it gets to either raw material or some labor so therefore everything is a product of labour. Therefore the capitalists are like basically taking, you know, parasitizing labour and taking the excess value off their labour and um, you know stealing from them through profits. So she's like that those sorts of lines, she's directly attacking um I suppose the labour the labour the, the, the side of that of that
0: debate. The labor theory of yeah, value. Labour theory of value, but particularly the
1: Marxist theory of value. Um
0: yeah. yeah, and it it makes a lot of sense given that she she grew up in Stalinist Russia, which <laughs> pretty fucking bad. Yeah, pretty pretty Stalinist fucking in bad. Moscow. Pretty
1: bad. Yeah, she she's in Moscow, I think.
0: Yeah, so a lot of her deep antipathy to this form of thinking makes sense, but just because someone's someone's reasons for believing something are understandable doesn't make those ideas correct. And I agree with you completely. Where it's a false dichotomy. Actually, you need both. You need someone to have these ideas and then you need manual labourers to instantiate them. And it is true what she says that, okay, as speaking as Dagny, I am also capable of driving the train, but I can also have these ideas. Whereas your union members can only drive the train, but can't have those ideas. That's true. But in terms of dividing up your time, if someone who's capable of having great ideas is spending all of their time also physically instantiating the ideas, then their, their productive capacity is just so diminished.
1: Yeah, and I guess this is not a... Uh, so I- it ends up, as we sort of mentioned earlier, like it's not really Labor necessarily versus Dagny. It's the unions versus Dagny because she ended up getting a bunch yeah. of volunteers who she didn't pay them, I think. I, I'm pretty sure they were volunteers. Carmen the Yeah, first. they, all put, their they all put their hands up, hands up they wanted and they to, be wanted part to it. help her. And then there were also a bunch of people who volunteered to guard the train line without being asked.
0: So Yeah, well, not even volunteer to guard the train line. It's Dagny's in. The locomotive looking around she just notices all of these people from taggett transcontinental who have shown up with guns to guard the train line to make sure nothing happened which just
1: as a historical note like, even it's them. really interesting that actually during early industrialization well, yeah yeah throughout probably like the 20th century unions did do a lot of that sort of shit. like they did destroy factories and, and stuff um and hold hold those sorts of like capital investments hostage so i think she's there's I don't know enough about the American context she's writing in except I can imagine that there's probably a background of like those sorts of events happening that she's sort of like, no people like the laborers will defend the capital if they believe in what's happening. It's not, it's not like it like the capitalists just have to hire armed guards to suppress the workers. I think that's what she's trying to say. Like the people are showing up and supporting the train because they believe in something.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's this its this distinction between intelligence and rationality that I think is a really good way of examining most things that happen in this book. So for Ayn Rand, rationality, this ability to to recognise the objective world and then to act accordingly is the most important thing. You need to be rational. It's really good to be intelligent, but it's not the same as being rational. And so in this case, the manual labourers she would probably regard as not particularly intelligent but they're rational so they see that in yeah in this new train line there is something really special and they want to be part of it and even though they couldn't build it themselves they want to protect it yeah the the rational intelligent axis is a i felt was quite a useful way for me to view the different characters in this book so for example eddie Willers, moderately intelligent very rational Dagny Taggart, just fucking optimised in every way. Very, very intelligent, very rational. <laughs> Dr. Stadler, whom... Uh, actually, no, he would have come up already. Yeah. So he's this really... He's a brilliant physicist, so highly intelligent, and was the te- one of the two important teachers at Patrick Henry University of three very important students. So Francisco D'Anconia, Anconia, whom we've already mentioned... Ragnar Dennisgold, who was, when I heard this character first so brought good. up, I actually so just started good. laughing. Who's, so funny! Who is a an objectivist pirate? I fucking love who's that. Who's sailing I around the high seas <laughs> with his pirate boys, just attacking, attacking government vessels, or like shipping and sinking their is, ill-gotten
1: gains, sinking at Danconia's um copper, copper like ships carrying copper and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Or when the government finally forces. Hank Reardon to sign over the formula of Reardon Metal. Uh, Ragnar is sailing around with Bronze Age Pervert at the helm, sinking all of the boats carrying um, Reardon Metal so no one can benefit from the theft of Reardon Metal. Really, like, Ragnar (laughs) was BAP. (laughs) Ragnar, yeah, Ragnar. I imagine Bronze Age Mindset was basically just written with Ragnar in mind.
1: Like, if we actually map Ragnar previous Ragnar is also characters, just
0: ethereally beautiful. Ethereal. Iron uh, Rand makes sure to say on several occasions that Ragnar is just stunningly good-looking. Unbelievably handsome. I think we could
1: map a number of the and authors from previous Book Club from Hell episodes onto, <laughs> onto characters. So BAP would be Ragnar... Um, I think that uh I think yeah, that Solanus yeah. would be Dagny. Oh,
0: and because and Ragnar wanted to be a philosopher <laughs> yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. So he's even more bad. I
1: think Solanus is Dagny. <laughs> she's a groovy, groovy hardcore, you know, man stabbing bitch.
0: <laughs> no, no, but Dagny Dagny loves getting roughly fucked Okay, by so men, she's selkie. Definitely did not <laughs> she's like She's She's Yeah she, she's she's a, she's a fusion of owner and yeah yeah yeah.
1: Like <laughs> so should we um maybe get back to the
0: plot? Oh, actually, I just wanted to say like the third at this point in the book, at least the Robert so Stadler, Robert Stadler, the state science who's now running the state science institute, super intelligent but irrational because he just he does not want to deal with other people he feels it's okay to lie to the public to make them do things which is which you shouldn't do because that's preventing the public from being rational because it's hiding objective reality from them and he just gets walked all over by by his his unpleasant colleagues and as the book goes on he becomes more and more hostile to rational objectivist people and becomes one of the villains. Yeah, he's the
1: coward villain. He's one of the coward villains.
0: Yeah. So he's an example of what happens if you're intelligent but irrational. And it, it ends up badly. So ultimately what makes you good is your rationality, not your intelligence. Uh, and also, so he mentions that he had these three students that he loved and he just thought were the most, were going to be world changers. One was Ragnar. One was Francisco de Anconia. And then there's a third one, and he doesn't say his name. And he, he says he must be dead because if he was still alive, he would have changed the world by now. And uh, keep that in mind, dear listeners. It's very important. Yeah, so the, the end of um, part one ends with Dagny
1: basically going on a wild goose chase for looking for the person who built this amazing engine that her and reared found. And she goes, she literally goes like all over the fucking like United States, like chasing leads yeah, <laughs> all over looking. Um, yeah. And it sort of ends with her, like with a, with a big question mark. <laughs> it's very good. Uh, and along the way she, no, with a big dollar and, sign and a big dollar sign. Um, uh, yeah that's right actually um in particular she she meets um a philosopher an important philosopher who is now a a chef, a very good chef, but he refuses to do philosophy anymore
0: he's he, the food is incredible incredible
1: he's incredible and he's one of the uh he's one of the objectivist characters, but he's he's resigned so he stopped doing philosophy he left philosophy he said he's one of those you know one of the many people over the last five or ten years that have exited society or exited their, their labor from, from from the society and he refuses to do philosophy anymore. <laughs> and, uh, yeah.
0: What's even more interesting than that, because it she just finds this diner in the middle of nowhere and goes in and notices that the cook is very good looking and makes <laughs> to yeah, mention really that he's remarkably handsome. And that... And that the food is really good and that he's working so expertly on the grill. Turns out it's Hugh Axton. So when I said that Dr. Robert Stadler, who was then a teacher at Patrick Henry University, he and another teacher had these three incredible students. This other teacher was Hugh Axton. And the handsome cook in this diner in the middle of nowhere is Hugh Axton, who's stepped back from the world. And it is interesting, when he's talking to Dagny... It's more superhero dialogue because he's a bit evasive as to why he's stepped back from the world. But I think he gives her a cigarette to smoke and she does because she loves smoking. And it's got a gold dollar sign on it and she just doesn't know that she doesn't know this brand of cigarettes and cuz she's she is a tobacco hound. That's unusual that she doesn't know the brand of cigarette that she's smoking. I want a cigarette. I want a cigarette. And this dollar, dollar sign on it now. will become important. That's <laughs> so good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, cigarette is a major plot point. And so, in addition, oh, that's right. And she asks Hugh Axton about this motor. And he says, You will never find the person who created this motor, not until he wants to find you. Dup, du da, da, da. Yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. In terms of part one, the only other thing probably worth mentioning is it's, uh, what's it? it's called like Directive Ten Two O Nine, which is put in place by this band of Washington boys because they say, oh, the country's getting worse and worse and worse. The country five years ago was economically in a much better place than it is now. So what we've got to do is just freeze everything in place so it stops getting worse. And Directive 10.209 does that by basically making it illegal for anyone to leave their job, make it illegal for anyone to get a new job, make it illegal for (laughs) firms to move, like, to shift location, makes it illegal for people to own more than one company. So it basically just says, okay, the economy as it is now, you're not allowed to change anything. The static, the statically
1: rotating economy. (laughs)
0: It came, it's really it funny. Economy. Yeah, um, it, yeah. The directive ten two oh nine. I also found really really funny. That, that's look. I'll give her the benefit of the doubt and assume that she was being intentionally amusing. Like, it's just well, such a funny idea. It's okay. We'll just freeze everything in place. I think. I
1: think. What I would say about these aspects, whether even the heroes, how it's what's the word? It's hyperreal. It's hyperrealism. It's like she's turned everything yeah, up to 11. Yeah, yeah. It's like, I mean, she knows obviously yeah. that her characters are unrealistic, but that's not the point. She's like trying to make them into like archetypes. And even with things that are happening yeah. in society, it's like most, every now and then America has some dumb fucking regulation that, you know, like the US Patriot Act, you're just like, that is such an Orwellian name to give that fucking piece of legislation. But, you know, so she's, she's playing on that like, the act says one thing, but it's actually doing another, and I imagine that is very heavily informed by what she saw in Soviet Russia. So she's she's turning up the the realism oh, yeah, 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 on everything, sure. and it's at times it's funny, at times it's a bit overbearing, <laughs> and 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 at times <laughs> and at times it's it's is it satirical or is it funny because we
0: just find it funny? Was she trying to be funny? Is, I I found it hard to tell in terms of satire, it depends on how you define satire. So I don't think this is, a, this is a humorous satire. But it's satire in that she's taken elements of the world around her and then placed them into a story where we can examine their contradictions and the ridiculous aspects of them. Yeah. Oh, actually, at, um, an important thing closing... I think this actually does close, part one. So, w- Ellis Wyatt, the... The fracking superhero told Dagny and Hank Reardon that if the government pushes him too hard and if the government makes it impossible for him to operate, he's going to try to bring down as many people with him as he can. And when Regulation 10209 is passed, it's going. What it does, among other things, is it just basically kills Ellis Wyatt's business. And it's going to yeah. make it impossible for him to keep operating. So what he does is he just blows up his entire oil yes, fields it's on fire. in Colorado. And um, it's something like it, there's a scene where Dagny's trying to reach him really quickly to stop him from doing something crazy. And she finds the oil fields on fire and she finds a note there somehow that says something, it's from Wyatt, and it says something like, I've left them as I found them. They're all yours. Which is just reinforcing this point that Ellis Wyatt was capable of having these ideas to make this plot of land productive of oil. And without those ideas, no one else can do it. So he says basically, like, I've left it as I've found it. You know, unusable without my ideas. You know, try your best to use them now. And this... This, uh, this huge inferno will be a symbol throughout the book. People come to call it Wyatt's Torch because no one can put it out. And the government tries the Wyatt Reclamation Project to basically put out the fires in the oil fields, but they just can't do it. Without Ellis Wyatt, it do- it's not happening. And that's how the first part ends, mm. with Wyatt having set all his oil fields on fire and then disappeared himself vanishes without a trace i did find that pretty cool actually so part two i'm not sure how long the gap is between the end of part one and the beginning of part two but at the beginning of part two energy shortages are already starting to bite because now wyatt has gone and there's just not nearly as much oil floating around so people are already having to go without heating and stuff like that. And that's something I think Iron Rand does well mm. is the gradual decay of society in Atlas Shrugged. So when the book starts, things aren't great, but people's lives are relatively untouched. They're not too bad. Whereas by the end of the book, it's a, America is just falling to pieces, states are seceding, there are civil wars within these states which have seceded from, from the rest of the United States. It's just complete chaos. people going around in horse-drawn carts. That is, that is an element of the book that I, I did enjoy.
1: I, I think that she did a really good job of um, you, you could interpret this as a
3: uh, as a warning
1: as a warning to, to America about basically
0: i don't even like i mean yeah you can interpret it that way i think it's pretty explicitly a
1: warning yeah yeah um well because the other interpretation is you could interpret as a description of what was and has been happening um i mean like what do they call it uh you know like the road to serfdom so she was friends with von mises and von mises was just like no like had no tolerance for any like social policy at all is just like, no, we need, like, that is a slip. Loop. Like, it'll just, like, ratchet towards, it starts here, it starts at, you know, uh, at time T, it starts with a little bit of s- socialist policy, and then at time T plus N, it'll just be, like, become full, full-blown full socialism. And <laughs> her, so, like, um, von Mises, notoriously pig-headed, oh, not pig-headed, like, stubborn. Um, and, obviously, Ayn Rand, <laughs> notoriously stubborn as well. So, I imagine they just, like, amped each other up <laughs> and, and so what she's probably had <laughs> yeah maybe i, I just, probably don't interpret von Mises as having a sexuality <laughs> it's like angry old man but uh yes perhaps <laughs> um perhaps she uh Ayn Rand, put, put the <laughs> yeah her. yeah um yeah so she might have also been describing like this is this is a warning of and it's a description it's a warning of what will happen if america keeps on going down this route Um.
0: yeah and yeah in many ways too it's sort of the reductio ad absurdum of i'm i'm sure how she viewed government attempts to to legislate on social policy you said okay let's (laughs) Mm. let's push this to the extreme so all of the bad characters just keep talking about how i'm only interested in the public good I'm not interested in profit. I think at one point Oren yeah, Boyle yeah. that made a really funny comment where he, he just shrieks at someone. It's like, no one can accuse me of running a profit-making business. No one. <laughs> it's just such a good line. <laughs> yeah, so good. And, uh, and he, he meant it as a good thing. It's, you know, look how virtuous yeah, yeah, yeah. I am. My company has never made I've a never profit. I've never made a profit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can't be accused of making profits.
1: <laughs> yeah, so there's this pretense and, again, through I'll, all...
0: I assumed that she was trying to be funny there. She really yeah. succeeded. That was very like funny. Like all, of the, uh, all but, of the irrational. Yeah, she, she takes these and then just pushes it to an absurd place so that I, I think she felt that we could see the, the folly of social legislation.
1: Yeah, and in particular, there is a theme that goes throughout the entire book, which is that the virtuous characters are living for themselves they're doing things, I want to make a profit or I want to make this end, this train because it's amazing, it's awesome. Like, I want to save my company um, because my my legacy or whatever. Um, whereas all of the
3: like villains are
1: always apparently motivated by selfless, uh, by selflessness. So doing things for other people.
0: <laughs> you know, the classic example
1: being like, yeah.
0: Well, they, they tell everyone that that's what yeah. they're doing very, very performative. Yeah, whereas
1: way. obviously they're also, like, enriching themselves or whatever, you know. Um, and the classic example of that being, yeah. like, the, the Friends of the Planet or whatever it was, <laughs> um, organisation.
0: The, the Friends of yeah, Global friends Progress, of global
1: progress. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's just such a so good, good time.
0: This is the thing with Ayn Rand. It's, or with many of the books we discuss, actually, once you've read this brick of a book... It's quite funny to talk about in hindsight. It's just like this. It should be 400 pages long. <laughs> A four, if it were four or 500 pages, I could recommend it pretty comfortably to people. Because there, there are so many really genuinely very amusing things in the book. Yeah, I I didn't have to like
1: it yeah, it is very long like strap yourself in if you're going to read it. but yeah, I I didn't mind that. I found it forgivable. I probably if I was going to if I were going to edit it, I probably wouldn't cut it a huge amount. Like I, I reckon
0: yeah. Personally, edit, at least, there's you know, there's so much in this <laughs> book that's so repetitive. So, for example, every time there's a scene of an objectivist and a non-objectivist disagreeing with each other, just one of those will be quite funny, except yeah. she has so many of them that go on for so long, and they all say more or less the same thing. There's just there's so much redundancy in here. Yeah. And these sort of things, they don't drive the plot forward. They don't tell us anything more about the world they're not really serving any purpose other than letting us know that this particular character is good. This particular character is bad, but we know that.
1: Yeah. We know that just from the physical description. Yeah. I guess.
0: (laughs) Yeah. From, from the physiognomy of the characters, we already know that. And like I said, just one of these characters, I mean, one of these characters, if these scenes were used much more sparingly, I would enjoy them because they, they're quite funny, but Yeah, they're just, they really don't need to be there. So in part, it's it's an aesthetic problem I have with it, which is subjective. Ayn Rand would say it's objective.
1: There's probably aspects of it that are like objective, intersubjective, subjective. Um, Yeah. Probably these days, I imagine if 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 there was somebody doing something similar, it would not. Like they wouldn't end up writing twelve hundred pages.
0: <laughs> I think it's a bit of a meme when people say, Oh, people don't read anymore. They only want short books. Because for example, look at George R. R. Martin's books, they're really popular. Those are gigantic. I don't think it's right actually that, mm, that people yeah, don't read long books anymore. No, oh, people
1: read lots of long books.
0: I think that's mostly coped by authors who can't can't self edit stuff <laughs> down. No, I meant like for writing like the same book. Um, I think, like, for writing the same book, I think, irrespective of when it's written, it would just be vastly improved if it were half the length or even yeah. shorter. So, should we, um, should we keep on going the plot? Yeah, let's keep going through. So, we get the first mention of Project X, Project Xylophone, which is a secret project at the State Sciences Institute. That Dr. Ferris, one of, um, one of the underlings at the State Sciences Institute, knows about and is running, but Dr. Stadler doesn't know about. And Dr. Ferris will become a more and more important figure in the plot. He's, he's fairly intelligent, but very irrational. And he, he, he writes this book called Why Do You Think You Think? which basically just talks about how truth doesn't exist and any feeling that a human being might have as to whether something is true or not is just a figment of their imagination. And th- and uh, it basically just says everything that is the antithesis of objectivism. And Stadler is like the state, the state scientist. Yeah, yeah. Both of them are working for the State Science Institute. It's just at this point, Stadler is still somewhat redeemable. He's... He's not very rational, but he's rational enough to dislike a lot of the stuff that Dr. Ferris is doing. But Dr. Ferris is just irredeemably irrational. He's just a bad mm. person.
1: And, uh, and for context, they're using uh, Stadler's reputation with the public, like, good reputation, as leverage for, basically, like, <clears throat> their authoritarian or their corruption, like, doing stuff and, and sort of, like... Not necessarily running by like public, public uh, announcements of the science institute. Um, they're not actually running it past Stadler.
0: And this is a, I quite liked this part because it did talk about a problem I see in science, where Stadler doesn't. So okay, so F- Dr. Ferris doesn't really believe what he wrote in his book. Why do you think you think? He wrote it because he said. It will make the public feel better about not being able to think very well if, they, if they're told, oh, don't worry, no one can think, so it doesn't matter if you feel inferior. Everyone's bad. Mm. Mm. And he does this to get funding and to make the public feel better about science. And Dr, uh, Dr. Stadler at this point is still rational enough where he says, no, misleading the public like that's bad. And Ayn Rand obviously thinks it's bad because you're preventing the public from being rational. You're hiding ob- objective reality from them. And I do think this is an issue with a lot of mm. not just not just scientists but people who self-describe as experts in a field where they feel that because non-experts in their field don't understand as much as they do, then those people must be stupid. And therefore you can lie to them if that lie makes them behave in a way that's for their own good. It's this sort of technocratic authoritarianism. And I I profoundly disagree with it because, well, from, from both a practical and an ethical perspective, I think just lying to people like that because you assume that you're right and they can't possibly be shows a profound lack of insight that maybe you're wrong too. Yeah. But also practically it almost never works. People tend to find out that you've been lying to them and then you shred your credibility and you shred the credibility of whatever, for example, scientific discipline you were apparently acting in the name of and you end up just doing far more damage to science as a whole or as a pursuit than you would have otherwise if you were just truthful with people. So I felt that this section was, it's somewhat obnoxiously written, but she is talking about something that is important.
1: Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's the uh, what's it called the um, the priesthood, the new priesthood, secular, the secular priesthood of yeah. um, experts and scientists and professors, whatever.
0: And I think it's fine having people who know what they're talking about, yeah, or domain experts, <laughs> running things, or at least having a lot of power in in a certain domain. Where I get off is where they start lying to people and misleading people intentionally because they say oh well we know we know so much and you know so little that you will just behave irrationally if you knew the truth so we need to lie to you to make sure you behave in your own interest and oftentimes the people saying that are also getting things wrong but they're so pig-headed that they don't acknowledge it yeah Uh, so what else oh so Uh, So Dagny's still looking around for the person who built this motor and she's decided that she's going to try to reverse engineer it. She gets Dr. Stadler to come and have a look at the engine, which she's storing in Taggart Transcontinental Terminal in New York, uh, underground. And he recommends Quentin Daniels to help reconstruct the motor. He says, okay, this is one of the few good, I forget if Daniels is a physicist or an engineer, but he's something like that. He's good with motors, and he's recommended by Dr. Stadler. And I thought this was a very good piece of symbolism. So, uh, Quentin Daniels is working at the Utah Institute of Technology as a night watchman, which is the only good function of a state in Iron Rand land. <laughs> I bet, I bet she was referencing John Stuart Mill when, when, when um, she talked about how Quentin Daniels is the night watchman. <laughs> 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 So like the 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 Utah Institute of Technology has shut down because of lack of funding but Quentin Daniels put his hand up to stay there as the night watchman. And while he's fulfilling his role as the night watchman, he's in the lab at the Utah Institute of Technology doing experiments for his own gratification. But anyway, he he starts working on trying to reverse engineer this motor. And we'll we'll just leave Quentin Daniels to the side. For the moment But he will become very important In Dagny's story at, at some point later on in the book In terms of big plot points There are a lot of There are a lot of less important points That are quite funny For example, James Taggart gets married to the, To a girl named Cheryl Who's from a poor background And he uses her as this prop Basically to show everyone How big hearted and democratic he is <laughs> That someone as wealthy as him would marry a poor girl. And he just basically trots her out at parties and things to show everyone. To show yeah, everyone. And, kind of like constantly and to demonstrate how good he is. Constantly like cuts her down. <laughs> or like, not
1: cuts her down, but like. Yeah. Um, like she'll say something positive about him or Dagny or whatever, and he'll just like twist it.
0: Yeah, James Taggart is pretty dislikable. I also think it's quite funny how Ayn Rand compares the sex life of James Taggart with that of Dagny. So James Taggart, on his first, I guess it's a sort of date, with Cheryl, he doesn't sleep with her. And he tells himself it's because he he's just too high-minded for sex. Whereas in fact... He actually just has no sex drive because he's not an objectivist. Whereas, <laughs> yeah. and so this is this. I think this scene happens just after Dagny and Hank Reardon have sex for the first time, and they just go at it like absolute animals because they're both optimized objectivists, and so their their sex life is intense. And this does get to a deeper point that Ayn Rand makes, where she she seems to say that it is only someone who is rational, that is, someone who can engage with reality, who can truly experience joy. So joy, desire, love, these are things only open to people who are rational. And that's why James Taggart is just not interested in sex, because he's never experienced good sex. He's only experienced the physical activity of it. But anyway, it's uh, James marries her and eventually she, uh, Cheryl, James's bride, kills herself because she's rational and she just can't stand James's irrationality. In terms of other things, so Dagny is still searching around for for the company that made this cigarette that she got from Hugh Axton with the golden dollar sign on it. And it's just, it doesn't seem to be made anywhere. She can't find it. Ken Daniger... Who's another titan of industry? He mines coal, disappears. And Dagny gets a bit more insight into why all of these titans of industry are disappearing. So, Daniger and, and Reardon are taken to court for an illegal sale of Reardon mm. metal. And shortly before the trial is to take place, Dagny just has this intuition that Ken Dan- Daniger is going to be the next titan of industry to disappear. So she goes to meet him, she organises a meeting with him and she gets there and he's already in a meeting and he stays in the meeting for ages and he's late for the meeting with Dagny which is highly uncharacteristic for him and she's getting really nervous and eventually he invites her into his office and she goes in and he basically, he looks relaxed for the first time ever and he tells Dagny, I'm going to, basically just says, I'm going to disappear tomorrow. And Dagny realises that whoever was talking to Ken Daniger must be the person who's been convincing all of these other titans of industry to the disappear. The
2: destroyer.
0: <laughs> the destroyer. She calls him the destroyer in her head. So this is a pretty important plot point because now we understand that there's some sort of logic behind the people who are disappearing. Obviously, mm. the people who are disappearing were competent people, but now we see that there, there must be someone or a group of people Orchestrating. This. There's a
1: conspiracy
0: afoot, and Dagny feels that it's it's this massive conspiracy to to undercut all competent people in America, and she hates this destroyer and wants to kill him. Yeah, and then does she? Does she? Is this
1: the part where she? Uh, she chases. Is this, is this the part where she chases?
0: Chases him. I think we're getting up to the good part. I should also say, actually, because this is important. So Eddie Willers. Dagny Taggart's Beat a Bitch Boy Regularly goes and has lunch In the Taggart Terminal cafeteria With this unnamed worker Some sort of manual labourer Eddie doesn't even know this person's name But he really Mm. likes talking to him He just feels that he understands And Eddie tends to just pour out his soul to this guy And this person will ask the odd question Mostly about Dagny And what she's doing But we'll, we'll leave that to the side for now In terms of big plot points, as you said earlier, an important thing is that Dagny tries to get in touch with Quentin Daniels and I think she's having a hard time getting onto him and she starts worrying that he's going to be taken away by the Destroyer too. So she, she makes this journey to get to Quentin Daniels and it's something like when she reaches him, she sees him getting into this plane and taking off. And so Dagny, because Dagny is an objectivist superhero, she also knows how to fly a plane. And she gets in a plane herself and starts GTA chasing this plane that took off with Quentin in it, starts flying after him. And this is a pretty good scene. I liked this scene, how Dagny's chasing after this plane, the fuel in her plane's getting lower and they're going out over the mountains in Colorado and she just doesn't know where this other plane is flying because... There's no landing strip for ages. And this other plane starts flying lower and lower. And Dagny doesn't know where it's going because she thinks it's got to crash. Why is it flying that low? And then it disappears. Mm -hmm. And Dagny (laughs) just keeps following it.
1: Just goes. goes. I thought this was one of the better scenes. And she follows
0: it into this strange... Yeah, this is a good scene. There's this strange kind of silvery looking shiny... It almost looks like cloud cover between, uh, nestled between mountain peaks and Dagny flies into it and then just suddenly the power cuts from the plane and she goes, she's, she's going to crash and she, she smashes down and she thinks she's, she's definitely dead. And then she wakes up in paradise. This, this part of the book was good. I liked this part. This is libertarian, libertarian techno-objectivist paradise. Intriguing because Ayn Rand in this part forgot to put in any monologues to kill the kill the pacing so the pacing was still intact and i wanted to see what would happen but this this part was good this is good dagny wakes up and and she's she crashed into a field and she's surprised that she's still alive and she she's uh, she's picked up and saved by none other than the destroyer himself john galt um and this is like, this is the part of the book where I actually started feeling more annoyed with Iron Rand, because up till now, it felt like a pretty funny satire that was, that was marred by the execution. It was, it, she went on for too long with explaining her philosophy or getting people to give lectures on her philosophy. It was overwritten, but I didn't feel like she was spoiling anything Special, but with the introduction of Galt's Gulch, I got more annoyed because I thought this, this concept is so strong. And, it's the, and she's really fumbling the execution. So, paradoxically, because this part made the book even more interesting, it made me even more irritated. <laughs> How about you tell us what Galt's Gulch is? This is just like, this concept is so fucking good. It's, it's just so funny.
1: Yeah, so it is literally just a libertarian capitalist uh, objectivist paradise. It's just all the most. <laughs> <laughs> it's fucking, it's basically like <laughs> Miami, Florida, if DeSantis just has, just becomes like supreme dictator. <laughs> <laughs> it's, DeSantis Lane. It's, DeSantis Lane. it's just it's just they're all just a bunch of capitalists muck, fucking making their motors and making their metals and shit fucking giant dollar sign made out of gold like like oh
0: fuck that's right yeah the dollar the giant dollar the dollar all sign statue hanging in training freely
1: like <laughs> yeah and uh it's all it's all the industrialists and the uh you know, there's this one guy who's a, a great um, concert p- uh, composer who's there, and he's written his like unpublished, it, it like his unpublished fifth Sinf- symphony or whatever is playing, and she's just like, "Oh my god, I just this is this is uh this is the best best place in the world, yeah." And it's it's hidden by like this uh,
0: by yeah, it's force like field, it's
1: not a force field, like um like a man-made mirage that like protects it from being seen from the air and um yeah
0: <laughs> yeah yeah it makes it look like there's this cloud covering the valley Gulch, Gulch. it's just like this valley in the mountains of colorado that's hidden completely hidden and this is where all of the industrialists who have been disappearing have gone so it, it's like you said it's like it's like friedrich hayek's wet dream it's this beautiful <laughs> valley full of full of producers Full of, full of people who make stuff. And <laughs> I remember reading this and just thinking of you, thinking, man, Levi's going to fucking love this <laughs> because Midas Mulligan runs the bank and he only accepts gold. <laughs> he doesn't accept paper money. Midas
1: <laughs> Mulligan. <laughs> Pure bold gold gold. Midas that Mulligan, that shit.
0: <laughs> and there is this bit where they where she starts talking about the gold standard. <laughs> fucking love that man. So fucking good. I, I was thinking of you when I was reading it. I just thought, no, this is like if Levi weren't sold on this book already, this is where it seals the deal. Look,
1: like it, it literally only took like a chapter for me to be like, yeah, I'm down.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, then, then this chapter was the coup de gras. Then of, like, <laughs> it is cementing itself. As Levi's book When they're talking about Sound money (laughs) When she's in libertarian paradise (laughs) Talking about sound money Yeah it's fucking great (laughs) But yeah I was I felt more annoyed that she At least to my mind Stuffed up the execution of this book When I got to Galt's Gulch Because (laughs) The idea of We'll get to John Galt as well But of this this guy going around convincing all the most productive members of society to disappear into like libertarian wonderland in the, the, the Rockies or I assume it's in the Rockies yeah. and just just trading with each other in gold <laughs> is, <laughs> while, while, while the rest of America falls apart is just so good. That, that is just an, an S-tier concept that's so good. It's so funny. Yeah, I fucking love that the, shit. The ridiculousness <laughs> of it, but then also, yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot to love about the concept. I <laughs> like think it's,
1: it's it's no, it's pretty funny. Uh, but yeah, I do fucking
0: love it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, Fantastic.
0: It's also really funny. So the the um you'd got a lot of superhero. Conversations before, but the superhero conversations here, where it's like Dagny Taggart and then all of these other titans of industry having dinner together, were just next level. Where they're talking about how good it is to produce and how they don't like parasites and how gold's really good <laughs> and how they only trade with each other's mind, <laughs> transactions between equal parties. <laughs> yeah, it's a. I didn't know that she knew von Mises, but man, if if I re- if he read this part, he would they have fucking thr- thrusted, loved it, man. <laughs> yeah, That was really funny. So the ca- character of John Galt or Galt, I think it's Galt. I don't know how to pronounce uh, well, it. I think I'm, I've said it both ways. In my in head, this I, I was anyway, saying so. John
1: Galt, but maybe that's wrong.
0: Galt's Gulch. Yeah, yeah, that Galt's sounds Gulch. better. So yeah. the the place no, is Galt's named. Gulch. So it, I think Midas Mulligan owns the land. And everyone except John Galt calls it Galt's Gulch, hmm. which yeah, I guess Galt Galt, Galt's Gulch. Yeah, that works better. I think you're right because it kind of Galt's Gulch. Yeah, with, that sounds snappier. Yeah,
1: not, I'm, I'm pretty sure she's aiming for alliteration or something to that effect. Galt's Gulch. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're right, but he's a he's a really important character. So. He is the third star student, the unnamed, up until now, star student, unnamed star student. of um, Hugh Axton and Robert Stadler. And he's the one that Stadler said must be dead because if he was still alive, he'd be changing the world. And that is exactly what he's been doing. But from his little fucking libertarian paradise, he's been changing it by convi- convincing God. all
1: of the like Elon Musk types to stop working. <laughs>
0: yeah, because what he, he he got this idea of, well, manual laborers go on strike, but what if men of the mind went on strike? So what if what if all of the Elon Musks and Mark Zuckerberg's in the world took took their brilliant minds and went on strike? What if they disappeared to libertarian paradise and left us all to our our own devices? What would happen? And this whole place is powered by this motor.. <sighs> Which which draws static energy from the atmosphere and makes it into kinetic energy, I guess. Or something. Galt was the inventor of the magic motor. Galt <laughs> is the destroyer. Galt is the one convincing all of the men of of, of great, great capacity to go on strike. He's behind everything. Yeah, he essentially invented a perpetual motion machine. <laughs> and even better. And this is just where we see more of Iron Rad's Sexual fetishes. <laughs> it's like she so she Dagny gets there. She gets healed up by a really good surgeon who left um the outside world because that it just wasn't rational enough. So naturally she gets she gets A the plus medical surgery. care. It was from um what was that guy's name? Um
1: there's this uh there was this um uh, biotechnology executive a few years ago who everybody was hating on. Um Who's just like hyper capitalist, like jacked up the the price of like his medication to like hundred thousand dollars a pill or some shit? Um, Are you talking about Martin Shkreli or something? Yeah, Shkreli. It's like Shkreli would be there.
0: <laughs> that that guy wasn't a biotechnologist. He was, was a he? <laughs> he was a financier. Yeah. So he didn't create the drug. He didn't create shit. He just bought it and jacked up the price. I think he was okay. a shithead.
1: But I still think Shkreli would be there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I don't. But Shkreli didn't create stuff. He just bought he just bought the rights to something.
1: Yeah, true. Maybe he would He's not he a wouldn't. creator. He's not a creator.
0: He's not a fucking builder. Little bitch. No. <laughs> but th- important- th- this is the place where Elon Musk would be shooting his mouth off on Twitter. From. <laughs>
1: so there is one important <laughs> thing about Galt's Gulch, which is there's like this pledge that they have to make. And the pledge is, uh, I swear by my life and my love of it that I will never live for the sake of another man, nor ask another man to live for mine. So it's just like pure American individualist, like rugged individualism to the extreme, (laughs) a bunch of gold bugs, you know, like. Exactly. You say it and a bald
0: eagle will land on your shoulder and shed a single tear. (laughs) The pledge is really important because Dagny has to give it to stay there. I should also add Dagny is just such, is just so optimised that she was going to be invited to Galt's Gulch eventually. She was definitely on the list, but it wasn't her time yet. But yeah, she fucking Jan flew a plane him. into there because, because she's an absolute mad lad.
1: Yeah, the one person who can actually find gulch. The
0: one gulch. person who's yeah. ever done it. Yeah. So she's in this strange position of she hasn't given the pledge, but she's in the gulch. So she's got she's got a period of time where she'll she'll stay there. And weigh up her options as to whether she'll give the pledge and stay or return to the outside world. And she's conflicted because she's not ready yet to give up Taggart Transcontinental. And she's still really into Hank Reardon, who's still on the outside. However, she... uh, John Galt has caught her eye. So she's living in John Galt's house and... Because nothing is ever given for free in this place, she needs to pay him for for room and board. And her idea is I'll be his maid. And you can just So naturally Galt is really good looking. So fucking kinky. And it's just so like Iron kinky. Red's sexual fantasies <laughs> on sexual fantasies. It's like I wanna I wanna be a maid for a powerful objectivist man. I should also add she really seemed to like having um like sort of being the property of a a really confident man being bossed around because Hank Reardon would like tell her what to wear. He'd just booty call her in the middle of the night, show up in her apartment because he had the key, and use her body and then leave. And there are a few scenes of Dagny Taggart telling him, it's like, yeah, I just want to be used by you. I just want to be an object for you to fuck and then tell what to do and then leave. And it starts again with John Gott where she tells him, I'll be your maid, and you can tell me what to do, because it's your house, and you are my employer. <laughs> and uh, naturally, she doesn't do it in Galt's Gulch. She does it when she returns to the outside, but she starts having sex with John Galt as well. Did I mention she had sex with Francisco de Anconia too? Yeah, there's three men that she. If I hadn't, with. she did, and that's Francisco. also important. It's like all. Yeah, all, all, so many of the really, really, the, the big dog objectives in well, the, the, the story. The three most conquers.
1: important male characters, like,
0: that yeah. aren't
1: villains. So, like, obviously James Taggart's an important male character, but he's a villain. So, like, all three of the top.
0: Yeah, he's a villain and he's also her brother. Yeah, all uh, right, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> small detail. Yeah, so. That's, that's, that's some very, very clever characterisation. So, Ayn Rand took him off the table immediately, so we don't have to worry about her having sex with James Taggart. She takes James Taggart off the table by making it incest. She doesn't have sex with Ragnar, though. So she didn't get the um the yeah, trifecta of the three yeah. star students. Yeah, yeah. I was half expecting her to sleep with Ragnar. Oh fuck
1: man, the Pirate King. That would have been cool. <laughs> the
0: Pirate King. <laughs> Ragnar. <laughs> yeah. Ragnar, fucking Punishing Norwegian Nordic Rock. <laughs> Look, I mean, Fuck, she's funny. <laughs> there is after the novel ends and everyone is happy in Galt's Gulch. Yeah, maybe that's when the the objective astrology starts. The
1: epilogue is just like uh, I bet you there's some weird like um like sexual fan fiction out there somewhere that's like Iron Rand fanfic,
0: Holy shit!
1: Like they're all just fucking and they're all using like gold and dildos and and shit like that.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, but the the Galt's Gulch stuff. I felt like went on for too long, and it started to lose its impact. But yeah. it is it is such a good, such a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> I, do, I, I really uh, love this idea. So uh, Dagny so funny, does funny. decide to leave, though she she doesn't give the pledge of allegiance. Um, yeah, she wants to go toe to toe.
1: She wants to beat John Galt. Like I'm not fucking. Yeah, it it gets competitive.
0: She's like, "Fucker, I'm not going to let him destroy my my railroad." She's not ready to give up the railroad, and she she wants to see Hank readen, but she starts wanting to see him less because she's getting more and more attracted to John Galt, and keeps imagining having sex with him and stuff. And it's pretty funny too when. When she leaves the Gulch, she has to be blindfolded and flown out so she can't tell anyone where it, like, where it is, I guess, even though she already flew there. But she, she gets blindfolded by John Galt, and you can just tell again. Ayn <laughs> Rand had someone do this to her. <laughs> they Tie me up, blindfold me use me <laughs> fucking good on her man. i do find it she doesn't
1: give a shit she's like no yeah, this I'm is kinky. so give it i me. really
0: <laughs> enjoy it when when authors of a book obviously have weird not only sexual hang-ups but just weird views of the world weird ways of interacting with other people and put it into their books and this is one of the aspects that made me like atlas shrugged more is that i think i just like a- because iron a- of- a- rand obviously Really liked having sex and really liked being treated roughly, and yeah. she just wrote it into the book everywhere. And she, she just so good I I really like this. Not me. only did she
1: not apologise, she's like, "No, this is good."
0: <laughs> no, she she ran it down your throat, and then and then the built an ethical and like philosophical that. system around it to make it not only. Fun, she's just but just justifying right her, her like
1: her her uh, her. Uh, like sexual exploits <laughs> she's like yeah i like to fuck no,
0: I, I like the confidence there it's, it's very confident Yeah, so much though. confidence so she goes back into the outside world and in i think she spent a month in gold's gulch yeah yeah you have to spend and a month even just within that month things have gotten so much worse in the outside world like there are food shortages energy shortages no new cars are on the road. There, are, there was quite a nice scene, actually, where she described, and I think it was quite a bit earlier in the book, where there are, like, people just can't afford cars anymore. So there are cars abandoned by the side of the road. It, they look like skeletons dying in the dirt. She meets with Hank Reardon, and <laughs> he, he immediately knows that she's seeing someone else and is like, I'm okay with a baby. Don't worry. This is also a lot of the Iron Rand, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the polyamory stuff, going sexual through. wish fulfillment. That basically, Dagny Taggart is such a fuck boy. She, yeah, yeah, she's a fuck boy. She just <laughs> so funny. <laughs> she just sees a new man that she likes the look of, and just swan dives into his pants. And then the men that she was sleeping with before, who are obsessed with her, remain obsessed with her and remain in love with her, but are all saying, I get it, Dagny, you met a better man. I'm, I'm not happy. I still love you. I loved all the times we shared together, but I get it. And uh, you have my blessing. And then Francisco D'Anconia, who also has had sex with Dagny and is still in love with her, finds out about Hank Reardon and is like, don't worry, baby, I get it. He's a great man. You know, you... You do you. You get on that steel magnate cock. And then finds out about John Galt and is also like, I get it, Dagny. He's a strong man. If, if I swung that way, I'd, I'd, I'd be lusting after him too. I get it. Don't worry about me, Dagny. You do you. And it's just, I found it quite funny and quite endearing that, because so much of this book is about taking responsibility and things like that, where Dagny Taggart's sexual exploits in this book The reason why she can get away with them is basically because you have a a succession of men who are uncharacteristically forgiving of someone just having sex with someone else, kicking them to the curb, and they, instead of being upset, say, yeah, I get it this is the right thing for you to do. I think you should keep doing this. I support you and still love you. I will be your emotional yeah, handbag, it's just like, well, but I will don't, place no emotional demands upon you.
1: You don't have to take responsibility for your actions if there's just no negative consequences for your actions, Jack. Don't, don't you get that? Yeah, and I found... Everybody's just In rational. the case
0: of Dagny Taggart's love life, she just she's so untrustworthy, just completely untrustworthy. She just basically <laughs> cheats on every man she's been involved with. But... All of them are so rational that, that they support it. It's like, yeah, let me, let me cradle John Galt's balls while he thrusts deep inside you. Can I be on cleanup duty, baby? It's just this part of the book I enjoyed more because it's <laughs> ju- it, it doesn't totally fly in the face of what she's saying. It's just the situation is so unrealistic that I can't imagine it ever playing out that way. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> In terms of important things happening in the world outside, though, what? How about actually, Project X is revealed. Project Xylophone. Mm. It's basically like a WMD that uses sound. Essentially, like like you a fucking ray gun. Essentially, you you basically just pick a point and it vaporizes it with sound. Yeah, and the government says that it's going to be there for public safety. And I also found this pretty funny. I love that. Public safety is you know, given a Given that, one. like, Ayn Rand wrote this before um, all the anti-terror legislation. And before but, the
1: modern era of bubble wrapping everything, the safety movement.
0: Yeah, yeah. But I found it very funny that the government has this WMD that it's going to use against enemies of public order <laughs> for your own safety. <laughs> I guess, yeah, a target doesn't change its stripes. I found that very amusing It's something that I think has become more amusing As time goes on
1: Yeah I mean like cops and shit These days are like military grade Fucking shit You know like even the cop In in Sydney there's literally In in New South Wales There's literally like this part of the New South Wales um, uh, Like police Called the Raptor Squad and they're like oh you tell me about these guys you're the raptor squad squad. and they're like they're just these you know like footy players right they're like six something like hundred plus kilos just beefed up motherfuckers okay imagine a bunch of those dudes but like kitted out in like kevlar vests and like batons and and shit you know i saw this one news report where like the Raptor Squad got called on a fucking house party. (laughs) You know, a house party.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The Raptor Strikes. And they
1: just fucked up some of these kids at this house party. It's like, okay, sure, shut down the house party, I guess. I mean, fucking it's a house party, get over it. But, like, send, like, you know, a couple of cars of normal cops and, like, tell them to shut the fuck up. And, like, not send in a fucking Raptor Squad. Like, what the fuck?
0: (laughs) You know? Levi, if something's worth doing, it's worth doing properly. (laughs) And I fully support this. I think the police should be more militarised. I fully support every every police precinct in Melbourne having access to nuclear weapons. And we should only have Raptor squads.
1: <laughs> we should only have Raptor squads. Just rolling around in, like, armour-plated
0: fucking SUVs and shit. It's an interesting... Distinction between the Australian police and the Czech police, whereas I find the Australian police, much of the time, seem to go out of the, their way to appear slightly ridiculous, like wearing high-vis high vests, riding around on bikes and things, awesome. Melbourne. Czech police are really fucking scary. Yeah. They're always very, very polite. But they look scary. It just seems like you're not allowed to join the Czech police force if you're under 6'3". Jesus. They're always these really intimidating, like gigantic dudes walking around with assault rifles. In the airport, they want around with assault rifles. Yeah, yeah. Same in France. Like, On the street, they don't have, uh, don't have rifles. Yeah, and I couldn't imagine what... Unless the, it's the... outside a big landmark like the castle, but... Yeah. You, yeah, I there's, there's much more of an open intimidation factor to the police here. <laughs> the, the US
1: cops also look very fucking militarised. Like, I've got weapons and equipment, so it's just like there's... Yeah, it's just domestic, domestic
0: military that's why they need Project X. They yeah. need the... <laughs> <laughs> I was quite disappointed, though, with Project X as a plot device. So when it was introduced, I thought it would play a much larger role in the story. I thought, oh, maybe they're going to use it to threaten Galt's gold. Yeah,
1: I thought that was... Yeah, same. Well, something, something like Maybe that. they're going to attack When she goals put
0: this into place, I thought, okay, I see what she's doing. This is cool. This is going to build some really interesting tension if now the gulch is under threat from the outside world. <laughs> <If> <laughs> the libertarian the paradise the rest of is being get attacked. back at it. Yeah, <laughs> well, I was State expecting a, a much bigger role for this. But all it ended up doing was, okay, so... Like, at the end of the book, Dr. Stadler has gone full Joker. He's lost any <laughs> vestige Joker. of rationality oh. and just decides, okay, I'm going to seize control of Project X. I reckon he's more of a... And so he goes out there, but then... Cuffy Meigs, who's another, is like a Washington <laughs> <Cuffy> person, <Meigs. laughs> has also taken control of it. Some of the names of characters are fantastic. I love that shit. Yeah, so good. Uh, and they basically just have this like fight and start slapping the control panel of Project X and just vaporize themselves. And yeah, that, it's a, uh, a subtle allegory for what happens to you if you're irrational. <laughs> you get fucking <laughs> vaporized by your sound super <laughs> Yeah, but I was I was disappointed that that's where the plot arc or the subplot of Project X turned out. I thought there was there's so much potential with the Project X subplot to introduce even more tension into the plot, but she didn't she didn't go there. Yeah. But I mean, look, that she she there's so much going on in this book anyway. That like yeah that that's something I would have preferred, but it's not necessary. There's also this really good po- point where um f- Hank Reardon so Hank Reeden is just getting getting it from every direction. The government is making it so hard for him to make anything, and whenever he complains about it, they just say, "Oh, but you're Hank Reeden You'll you'll find a way. You'll find a way to produce." Yeah. 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 And like, he's getting to his wits' end. Through, through the power of Dagny's pussy, he's learned how to be a good objectivist, and he's... I mean, I'm not really joking when I say that. It mostly is through having sex with Dagny that Hank Reardon transforms into the the objectivist Ubermensch. He... Like, he... um Lillian his wife, who's such a cow, finds out that he's having an affair with Dagny, and... Hank just doesn't back down and embraces it. Dagny says that they're having an affair on um on the radio that just publicizes and says, yep, I don't give a shit. You, you can't morally bully me into stopping this because it makes me feel really good. And Hank learns to embrace that. His family, who are also really unpleasant, he basically just says yeah. to them, look, you're living off my charity. You can continue to do so, but you've got to shut your mouths and stop attacking me. I don't want to listen to you. He starts really laying down the law and eventually he meets Ragnar in a field somewhere (laughs) and it's such a good scene where and again I thought of you in this scene where (laughs) Ragnar (laughs) this scene this scene is genius this is part of the reason why I'm I'm so irritated with this book because there are just so many nuggets of gold in this case literally that a letdown by poor execution. So, Ragnar has been has been uh, has been calculating the amount of money taken by theft by the state through taxes of all of the great people <laughs> who are going to be invited to the gulch, and he's what he's been stealing gold and he's been stealing stuff in his uh, in his piracy and selling it to a trusted third party. For gold. And then he's been putting this gold into Midas Mulligan's bank in Galt's Gulch um, to, uh, to compensate for it. So he comes up to, to Hank Reardon in a field in the middle of nowhere and says, Listen, mate, all of that income tax that you've been paying, all of that, 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 that slave tax you've been paying, well, it's all in a bank. In gold, in sound money. It's being kept safe for you, don't worry. <laughs> just the idea of, of an objectivist pirate calculating how much income tax the producers of the world have been paying, stealing that from the agents of the state, converting it into gold, and then putting it into sound money bank accounts for and them off, is and, just and genius. That's just so bank. good. Yeah, so it's good. just too funny it's just too good it's fucking awesome and when i heard it i just immediately thought of you i thought this is just this is so levi i can love that shit so fucking good pure levi
1: I I just think it's the only amazing. difference
0: is if it were in Bitcoin.
1: <laughs> yeah, look, they were doing their best for the technology they had, but Iron Rand, I reckon, should be fucking frothing Bitcoin. Iron Rand, twenty twenty
0: three, Iron Rand, she'd
1: fucking love Bitcoin. Just
0: slam it into my cold storage wallet, baby. Bro,
1: bro, oh my god! Imagine you could rewrite that scene, except instead it gives him a private key. <laughs> amazing.
0: He just he just hands over <laughs> yeah. a um a wallet a, like a, a Bitcoin Tracer. wallet. It's like, <laughs> don't worry, <laughs> don't worry, mate. Yeah. I've got I've got your private key safe in safekeeping. <laughs> Don't worry, man. It's in a multi sig. <laughs> yeah, it's fucking awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's an it's
1: an amazing, amazing. It's uh, so funny though. Yeah, it's it is it is it is extremely like it. Yeah, I love that shit, but also it is pretty funny because <laughs> it is just like just a pure distillation of like. All the memes of of these fucking like hyper-libertarian folks and bitcoiners
0: and shit. <laughs> so when you hear about how say Michael Saylor loves this book, fucking love, I can just imagine it. him fucking reading that reading that section, screaming to like, himself, yes! going,
2: "Yes, yes! <laughs>
1: <laughs> there is no other crypto asset network."
0: <laughs> he just like. He's reading this chapter and his hands start shaking, and suddenly he has to throw down his book like, and just run Bitcoin. out and start mining. He has to go and buy a few GPUs so he can increase the hash power of his mining rig. <laughs> he just goes and sticks his dick in
1: an ASIC, starts <laughs> fucking ASIC. Yeah, like, yeah <laughs> fucking Bitcoin.
0: <laughs> he just pulls off his pants and starts masturbating like a chimpanzee while he looks <laughs> looks at his mining rig. Starts sweating from the amount of heat coming out of Big the room where he's like mining.
1: Oil painting portrait of Ayn Rand in like fucking fishnets behind him. <laughs>
0: <laughs> he's smoking a cigarette, except instead of a gold dollar sign on it, he's got a, got a gold, gold Bitcoin, Bitcoin logo. To, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's
1: so fucking good. That's so fucking good. Love that shit.
0: <laughs> what else? So, what else is it? What else is important in this in the third act? So the decline of America is so stark now. Basically the only producers left are Hank Reardon and Dagny Taggart. Oh, actually, very important. So John Galt also leaves the valley. So a lot of people are going into the valley and saying like, yeah, we're never going to leave. This is it. We're, we're going to go into the valley for good now. Because a lot of them go in and out of the valley. Yeah, for like a month at a time. Or something. But a lot of them are going there and saying, yeah, we're just going to buckle down until basically the United States of America collapses. Yeah. And then we're going to come out and rebuild. But Galt leaves with Dagny. Mm. And it turns out, and I'm sure that this was in no way motivated by how Ayn Rand wanted to be treated by men, he leaves because he wants to watch Dagny and be with her. And he wants to claim Dagny from the external world. He wants to win her. And so John Galt has been obsessed with Dagny for over a decade. So that nameless worker, he's been working at Taggart Transcontinental this entire time. That nameless worker who keeps talking to Eddie Willers and asking Eddie all about Dagny in the cafeteria... Such That's been John Galt hectic just getting all vibes. of the juicy Dagny tidbits. Again, <laughs> He's I... He's been a know. fucking creep. He'll, he'll pay, he'll <laughs> <It's> pay uh, <laughs> Eddie, Eddie Willers a few gold pieces if he can steal a pair of Dagny's panties for him to sniff or something <laughs> in his like, piece of shit apartment in a, a slum of, like, somewhere.
1: Dirty bathwater
0: or some shit. <laughs> <laughs> he buys her bathwater, drinks it. <laughs> Fucking John Galt he's
1: just a complete fucking So creeper. John Galt
0: is just the biggest simp for Dagny. He's been floating around for her for over a decade, just trying to get close to her and watching her. And yeah. Dagny, And probably Ayn yeah, Rand probably
1: was like, yeah, this is fucking hot. Yeah, like I was... Fucking wanna stalk it. <laughs> stalk me, Johnny. Oh, yeah,
0: she was probably just she was she I bet she was typing with one hand and just strumming herself silly <laughs> while writing it the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. smoking like five cigarettes at a time, <laughs> masturbating furiously and typing out how John Galt is so obsessed with Dagny Taggart that he's worked a menial job for over a decade so he can watch her work. And it's such it's such a randian way of being a stalker as well because it's specifically like he, of course he's physically attracted to her, but he wants to watch her work and wants to see <laughs> yeah, how to competently she works her, at the rail.
1: industriousness. <laughs> he's just, just getting off on like how fucking <laughs> yeah. hard she works.
0: <laughs> there are so many scenes in this book of, of Randian heroes at their desks late at night, like collapsing <laughs> on their desk from tiredness, but then just pulling from deep within themselves this inner strength, to keep grinding <laughs> yeah, yeah. out those hours at work <laughs> They're on the
1: grind man And there's one scene shit.
0: earlier in the book I think when Dagny's working on the John Galt line When she's in this shitty office Because she had to split the John Galt line Into a different company Because uh, the the board of Taggart Transcontinental Were worried about the PR implications Of them working on the Galt line But it means that Dagny's working in this shitty um, This shitty office And She's collapsed on her desk and is pulling herself back up so she can keep working. And she notices the shadow of a man watching her and turns around to see who it is, but he's gone. And that was John Galt. John Galt watching Dagny, just working so hard, pushing through the tiredness. Probably had his dick in his hand and he was <laughs> masturbating at the time. That just how optimized this woman is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fuck yeah, Dag. The the Fuck intersection yeah. between industriousness and sexuality in this book is just amazing. I she's like fetish. <laughs> she, she, it's So fucking She's fetishized conscientiousness. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exactly
1: it. <laughs> Which I, I mean, to be fair, like, you know, points for creativity. I've never I mean, seen if you that, get a fetishized I've, never fetishized I've never seen that fetishized before.
0: <laughs> no. So when Quite often on this podcast, we complain that books are just saying something that we've read elsewhere many times before. <laughs> no, like when we talk about... Iron. Like, <laughs> it's far from the only thing offensive about white nationalism, but <laughs> one of the things that we often complain about with reference to white nationalism is just we've heard all this stuff before, that they have nothing new to say. Whereas I, I can say Atlas Shrugged, apart from the other novels that Ayn Rand has written, is something very new. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I haven't come across something quite like her novels before. Yeah, man, she doesn't give a fuck. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> so, yeah. um, so I think the government's close the attacking end of the plot, Hank right? Reardon. Yeah, Hank Reardon eventually just breaks through and is ready to be swept mm. away to Galt's Gulch because, like, the government organizes. Like the government has been infiltrating his workforce with with uh, saboteurs for a while, and they um, they make them start trying to ruin the mill Hank Reardon's mills, and what the what the government wants to do is say that it's because Hank Reardon has been treating his workers so badly that they violently revolted, and then use this as a pretext to try to bully Hank Reardon into basically just selling everything he has to the government. And this is a really funny point where there's this plot arc with this character that's called Wet Nurse for ages. It's some young man who's, who's appointed by the government to make sure that Hank Reardon is complying with government regulation. And this guy obviously resents Reardon, but also admires him. And over the course of the book, so this man is intelligent, but irrational to begin with. But over the course of the book, through proximity to a man as rational as Hank Reardon, this guy becomes more and more rational and eventually starts asking Hank Reardon if he can have a real job at the mills, if he can work at a smelter or something like that. And then eventually his plot arc is is closed when he sacrifices his life to protect Hank Reardon's mills from, from these... Um, from these looters, from the union members who are trying to destroy the mills for the government. And he dies in Hank Reardon's arms. And it's, this, it's a really drawn-out scene where this guy's been shot and he's telling Hank Reardon about how much he admires Hank Reardon and how much he likes industriousness and the power of ideas and rationality. And can he just get it's a just little like, bit of his
1: bathwater before can, he dies? Come on, mate. Fuck yeah. it. I, just, yeah. I just need to drink me some of that fountain of fucking youth, pure
0: industriousness. Give it to me, Hank. Can I just see your asshole once, Hank? Please. I bet it's perfect, perfect pocket butthole, Hank. Please, Hank. <laughs> just, just give me, give me a taste before I die.
1: <laughs> perfect uh, objectivist like, uh, objectivist rimming
0: scene. <laughs> <laughs> but this is the sort of said. I can imagine it in a Hollywood movie. It's some there's the redemptive plot arc of some yeah, character who was Cruise. initially antagonistic yeah, towards yeah. one of the heroes, but has had come to see the light, and this character sacrifices themselves uh, for for the hero and dies in their arms and delivers a deathbed soliloquy. And fantastic! It really is that, except the. The deathbed monologue is about the importance of industriousness and objectivist (laughs) philosophy. (laughs) It's just just so good.
1: It's just unrelenting, isn't it? The objectivist monologues. It's unrelenting. It it does not stop. (laughs) Iron is
0: she is relentless. I'll give her this. She stayed... On target yeah. the entire yeah. time. She was... Um, I, there, are, there are many things that just, I do not think need to be in this book, but she never lost sight of the fact that she was trying to convince you to be an objectivist.
1: Yeah, I don't know if it was convincing or just, like, smashing it over the head with it. <laughs> it's just like, you, I you, think, uh, you yeah, will be a fucking objectivist force convincing. <laughs> by the end of this motherfucking book.
0: <laughs> <It's> just- <laughs> It was just her slapping you in the face over and over again and screaming at you that you were going to be an objectivist now.
1: Great scene, great scene. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And then this scene gets even better because fucking Francisco shows up. Because Hank Reardon is also running around (laughs) trying to stop unionists from tracking his mills while his good workers are fighting back. And then a bunch of jackbooted unionist thugs knock him to the ground. But then some live, supple, athletic shadow jumps out and starts fucking shooting them. It's Francisco de Anconia shooting unionists to protect (laughs) Hank Reardon. (laughs) It's (laughs) <laughs> it's <just laughs> the most ridiculous it's just shit It's everything, everything you can watch Evil, evil brutish unionists, unionists Smashing a symbol of capitalism Getting shot dead by, by an
1: objectivist right. By Like the perfect, most athletic, most talented Young stud The fucking stallion
0: yeah Francisco and she makes, she makes sure to uh <laughs> to tell you you know, with what a land he he shoots these people <laughs> Francisco's good at everything, including just including shooting dead on three unionists <laughs> he's good at everything except keeping Dagny satisfied in the sack he couldn't he couldn't keep her <laughs> it's like... it's this is why it's so hard. I keep vacillating over whether I would recommend this book or not because it it, it has so many problems, but there are there are scenes like this or <laughs> there 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 are so many scenes which are just so there's such a good combination of being well-paced and well-written, but also just conceptually so funny that when you take a step back and think oh no, this is like this is like Batman beating up thugs, except the thugs are unionists, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and Batman is a really good It's capitalist. just a
1: capitalist, yeah. <laughs> just, on so many
0: levels, fantastic. That I'm really torn as to whether I'd recommend this book or not. She does so much to make me not want to recommend it, but then redeems herself with <laughs> sections like Francisco de Anconi shooting unionists <laughs> dead to save. Well, the <laughs> The occasional, like, ingredient.
1: hyper fucking, like, borderline BDSM sex scene or something.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. BDSM sex scene combined with, like, both characters relating to the BDSM sex scene from an objectivist standpoint. <laughs> like, from an ob- obnoxious objectivist standpoint. <laughs> Talking about forcing the victory from the other person and overcoming them in becoming the object of their desire and the object which they use to fulfil their own desire.
1: Yeah, yeah BDSM meets uh, objectiveness, ob- ob- objectivism. <laughs> Pretty fucking strange mixture.
0: <laughs> this is... Like, it's because this book is... This book is well-known, at least in certain circles, but I think it's such a good fit for this podcast because it is so bizarre. It, it It is just such a strange book. The whole concept of it is so odd.
1: Yeah, it is a really strange book, isn't
0: it? <laughs> it, it, it is It bizarre. <laughs> Made even stranger by the fact that it's so influential.
1: So we're, we're almost at the end here. Of, we're of basically the at the we're end. Still, so, we'll still chat about some other things. Yeah, let's, of the let's, plot. Let's I the would plot. say,
0: so, importantly... So, and th- th- this was delivered in such superhero dialogue. John Galt tells Dagny that the only person who can destroy him is her. That the only person who could lead the looters to John Galt is Dagny. And John Galt finally announces himself to America in by far the worst part of the book. <laughs> yeah, I knew you were. And a part of the book that
1: part of the book, I knew you were gonna hate this one. <laughs> yeah. If I were not reading it
0: for the podcast, I would have stopped here. Where the ultimate objectivist John monologue. Got, <laughs> um, f- fuck this part. I, I was so angry when I got to this part. I, I'm not joking. When I got to this part, I thought you, you fucking bitch, how fucking did you just submitted you do to this? like twenty pages of just fucking ranting? I just, I stopped. I stopped reading at this part, like because. I'll normally... So each day to get through books for the podcast, I, I will have a certain amount of time that I want to read for. And I, I just stopped reading this at that point, which I haven't done before. I was so angry. So <laughs> Well, you know, like Nation of Islam, or built- whatever. <laughs> you know, like, never before. No, this, is,
1: this is what, this is what really fucking angry. broke Jack. John Galt's motherfucking monologue on the radio is what jo- broke Jack. It wasn't Jack. even the
0: content of the monologue. It was, it was the... the how aesthetically <laughs> offensive this is. So she was building up really good plot momentum. And so the thing with Ayn Rand is she builds up good plot momentum. She can pace a novel, but then repeatedly shoots herself in the foot. When she's got plot movement, then she's like, okay, time for an objectivist monologue. And she kills all of the momentum she's built up. This is the worst example of that. Things were really moving. Like America's falling apart. The looters in government are panicking and trying to work out what to do. Dagny and Hank Reardon have broken through. They're objectivists. I thought, yeah, now it's like I am actually enjoying myself. And then John Galt delivers this speech over the radio to the nation. And it is literally 60 pages long of just repeating the same objectivist things that she's been saying for the rest of the book i was reading it thinking you've told me this you do not need to do this mm. she mm. just she killed dead all of that mm. momentum she'd mm. been building up I was it's just it's so infuriating she would she had something that was working and just grinds it to a halt because she can't she can't help herself it's like oh, maybe the reader's not intelligent enough to understand what I've been telling for the past fucking thousand pages. That No, we get it. You do not need to stop the plot for 60 pages to just repeat yourself. I was so angry at this point that she just, she ruined the pacing of the book.
1: I really like this book. And it's... But I think on this particular issue, I'm going to have to take Jack's side. I don't know what the thing I'm is. I fucked it. It's like, it's a, th- yeah, as you like, said, it's a 1,200 page book. with, like littered with objectivist monologues. Like, she could have had John Galt do his, like, I think it's cool the idea. Like, sh- this is, you know, that scene from this v, for, should have been v, the v, v from, from Fred and Detta when, when, uh, when V, I don't know, whatever the fuck, uh, the guy who plays, um,
0: the guy in the Guy Fawkes yeah, mask, guy Fawkes. like whatever yeah, his name is. I was
1: him Guy Where he gets on the telly, it's that scene. It's like, okay, you've got your monologue. All right, like, two minutes. You've got two minutes, baby. you got two minutes.
0: No. Yeah. <laughs> like, just, just no. like, give us. There are sections of give this. Give us the crux. <laughs> like, afterwards, it is acknowledged in the book that people say the speech took two hours. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like, like two, <laughs> two or three hours. Ayn knows full well that it's so long. Yeah, yeah. And it's like. Yeah, no, she didn't have to fucking do that. But <laughs> And this because of the way the book was moving, this was this should have been, should have been if the not climax. the climax, then one of the really high points. Because this is where John Galt, who up to now has been nothing but this this A figure villain. that no one knows who he is. He's this saying, who is John Galt? Who is he? The that country, country is falling apart, things like, accelerating. Yeah, yeah. The plot has now. so much momentum behind it. This should have been the moment where he reveals himself to the world, and it should have been big. But instead, like she, she made him just talk for sixty pages about stuff that we already know as readers that she's already told us.
1: Yeah, it's It's, uh, cooked. I reckon she um, cooked it. Yeah, this was just this was such a fumble. I'll give you that. She cooked it. She cooked it there. (laughs) The rest of it, the fucking the the gold, the gold in the field shit, and the pirate. Fucking the pirate objectivism and all that sort of shit. Awesome. Fucking awesome.
0: Like, that's good stuff. It's fucking good shit. And then just this. And the thing is. Cult monologue? Yeah. Nah. (laughs) after, After this, after this, it gets a lot of fun again. Like, for all my complaints about Atlas Shrugged, I had a lot of fun reading it. There were moments. It really is the objectivist monologues where I got very irritated and I wasn't enjoying myself. But apart from that, I had a lot of fun with this book. I think that's and fair. And after the 60-page John Galt monologue, the book gets a lot of fun again. Yeah, it's so I like guess It's like the like, editor really needed to pull her aside and say, you, you do not need this. Yeah, it's just like, um,
1: as I think I've said before, like, show, don't tell. You know, like, she's... she's a, I think she's a very fucking good writer. A lot of, like, I really like her descriptions of, like people and landscapes and you know some of the dialogue the shorter dialogues even if they're um even if they're kind of um hyper realistic um you know like comic book sort of style um i still thought that the dialogue was good that sort of thing but then yeah having the monologues where she's like yeah, that that is just to let me in. tell you because I don't trust you enough let me tell to have you. picked up on what I was saying. Yeah, and, you know, like, monologues have a place in theatre and literature and stuff. So there is a – it can be done well, done properly, but um, she certainly didn't you – know, well, I don't I guess certainly in your opinion, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> I think did had not
0: mastered she could cut out not all mastered. of the monologues except for the final john galt monologue which makes sense because it's live over it the down. radio except make it th- make it 3 pages yeah so yeah. with some of the monologues yeah, cuz with the monologues sometimes the people will be saying things i agree with and if they were much shorter, they would be very funny. So, for example, at James Taggart's wedding, Francisco D'Anconia shows up. <laughs> gives a speech about money. And then just starts <laughs> talking about money. the value of money. <laughs> like, money is fucking <laughs> awesome. And, and so, conceptually, that's hilarious. And if it were a short speech, I would have enjoyed it. Because, again, just that image of some some dude showing up and saying, okay, let me red pill you on money. <laughs> is just is hilarious and he said things that i agree with that that like money is not something that confers value ultimately the value of money is conferred by people what people trade for it. it he he was saying actually quite a few things that i don't really have a problem with it was it's just how it's delivered it's so obnoxious and very repetitive
1: i wonder why she was so repetitive like why she didn't feel so like some of the points she was making could have been said once or twice. And instead she said them. it was just like a bunch of, Like kept on saying it.
0: Yeah, because it's not as if this is a particularly subtle book. So in her dialogue, for example, which I, I expect you like more than I do, it's pretty of it, blunt. Some. Like, it's kind of it's like it's slapping you in the face with what she's trying to communicate. It's not like it's it's hard to understand what she's no. saying with it. It. it the the rest of the book is clear enough about what she's saying. They're caricatures. They're caricatures,
1: caricatures of the enemy, oh, yeah, and caricatures, yeah, of, massive caricatures, and caricatures of you know like the people that or the point of view that she likes. The uh,
0: and that's, that's I just not, read it through like an a, a f- an innately bad
1: thing. I imagined it in um almost like a film noir kind of vibe. The like when I was playing like mm. the video in my head of this was very noir. So it's like, yeah, the the dialogue was like overdone, but I always had this kind of like LA noir or like, you know, blade runneresque sort of the the dialogue's yeah, overdone, yeah. but it's like kind of intentionally like it's it's in the it's in the it's in the style, you know, that's what I was expecting. that's at least what I was imagining as I was, as I was reading it.
0: Yeah. It's very, very Obvious dialogue. She's obviously communicating a point, but that obviates the need for all of these monologues. Yeah. Well, they could just be shorter. So if we're talking again, talking about the, the-, the Francisco Dianko <laughs> <De> Ancon- <laughs> speech on the value of money to James Taggart's wedding party, <laughs> like he could have just made that, or like he, I'm talking about Francisco, Iron uh, Rand could have made that much shorter, and it would have had a greater effect because in terms of the scene. That, that, that's so funny. I want that in there. I want him to deliver a speech on the value of money to, to a wedding party, just because it's such a funny concept, but it doesn't need to be as long or as didactic as it is. I think you use
1: a good word didactic in the sense, like I think like advocating a point of view can be good, like with uh, Ayn Rand, but yeah, at times not being a, no, oh, yeah, like she's just bludgeoning at times bludgeoning you over the head with her point of view.
0: Yeah, it feels almost like you've got this novel which is fun, but in order to read it, she she stops you regularly and it's almost like okay, time to eat your vegetables, time to go to class before you can keep reading the, the, the fun novel. And it just it ruins the flow of the novel. Yeah. I'm gonna watch the films and I'm wondering if they're gonna
1: cut those fucking giant monologues out. Surely they'll have to. Like
0: <laughs> Oh, they would yeah, have yeah. to. Unless they want 10 hour movies. No,
1: they're like an hour and a half each.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, after after this speech, the government is aware of who who John Galt is. And interestingly, it's Dr. Stadler recognizes his voice and immediately says, you've got to kill this guy. This guy cannot be allowed to live. He will destroy you. And eventually, so Dagny Taggart is placed under surveillance because the government people say, okay, she's, they don't use the word objectivist, but they basically say, yep, she's an objectivist, so she's the most likely to have access to John Galt or to know who he is. Mm. So they follow her. And eventually Dagny is basically just, Too wet for John Galt not (laughs) to visit him And she finds where he lives on the the Taggart transcontinental payroll And goes to visit him I don't think they have sex, they definitely smooch for a while And he shows her his his workshop in his little slum apartment That he's been living in Basically just so he can keep stalking Dagny Taggart The government people have (laughs) followed her They find her, they find him she pretends, uh, she agreed this with, with Galt before, before they were found, that she's going to pretend that she doesn't know him. And as an aside, I reckon this is another one of Ayn Rand's kinks because with basically all the men sh- that Dagny is having sex with, she's not allowed to tell anyone, anyone else about their love. She seemed to have a thing for hidden yeah, love really and for hitting, in public. love and affairs and stuff. <laughs> And not only affairs, but in public, having to denigrate the person you're having sex with. So in public, Dagny Taggart's having to say, Oh, I don't like John Galt. He tried to destroy my railroad. Do what you want with him. I don't care about him. That seems to be a... And then the the relationship with Hank Rieden was something similar as well. That seems to be something that Ayn Rand liked.
1: Very complex sexuality.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and she she gives you 1,200 pages to meditate on her sexual preferences. The government, and this is really funny. So at this stage, people in the government acknowledge that they need people like John Galt or Hank Reardon or Dagny Taggart to mooch off of. And they basically, they eventually start torturing John Galt telling him that he must he must be productive for them and he must lead them. They start trying to force the control yeah, of ideas. the economy yeah. onto John Galt and are like, they hook him up to this machine that just uh, delivers him electric shocks and are shouting at him. It's like, you must lead us. You must be our dictator. I want, I want
1: ideas. <laughs> Give me ideas. We
0: want ideas. Give us ideas.
1: Very kinky scene. Very kinky scene.
0: And then comes one of my favourite scenes in the book. This scene is. Ayn Rand almost redeems herself here for the John <laughs> almost, Galt speech Almost Almost redeems scene. herself. <laughs> almost. And uh, like, th- this scene is a good scene. So basically, <laughs> Francisco D'Anconia. Actually, did. I don't think we mentioned. So Francisco de Anconia's mm. playboy lifestyle is a front. So he's been an agent of John Galt this yeah, entire he's just been time. Working the whole time. So throughout this book, he's been softening up Hank Reardon turning up at Hank Reardon's office and then telling him about how good objectivism is and stuff like that.
1: And you're doing psyops on Reardon.
0: Yeah. So Francisco, Dagny, Hank, and Hank Reardon and Ragnar <laughs> launch an assault. This is like the, this is like the on, fucking... On the, the Site prison where John Gold is being held and tortured by the government. The
1: objectivist... Uh... <laughs> It is so good. Uh, the objectivist Avengers come in, sweep the fuck in. <laughs> to like wipe out the statist fucking parasites <laughs> and the unionists and the- <laughs> so It's
0: full of this this place is full of jackbooted thugs who are elite soldiers who are good at following orders, but not good at thinking. There's this scene where Hank Reardon just and he's I think he's unarmed, just walks into like the, the break room full of elite soldiers. And starts talking, basically disarms them using facts and logic. He does Ben Shapiro on them. <laughs> he t- destroys them with facts full and ben logic. Shapiro on that shit. <laughs> goes Ben My Shapiro facts and, logic. On them. and then while while they're stunned with his facts and logic, one of them shoots him in the shoulder, and he just shrugs it off like a champion. <laughs> and then while they're stunned with facts and logic. Ragnar jumps through a window and shoots them dead. Oh,
1: that's fucking incredible. It is so fucking good.
0: It is just... It is so good. It's-
1: like Ben Shapiro teams up with fucking Maverick from Top Gun to fucking shoot some goddamn...
0: <laughs> no, with Jocko Willing. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, with Jocko Willing. To- ben Shapiro
0: and Jocko Willing. To shoot some fucking government bureaucrats. <laughs> and then... Oh, this this scene is... Wow, yeah, they they find John Galt, who's 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 fine, and they give him a cigarette to smoke with a dollar sign on it. Eddie, yeah, he he Our has a dart standing out, fucking uh, Dagny, <laughs> Dagny in front of the two other men that she's been stringing along like a fuck boy, like hugs John Galt and is like, oh, I'm so glad you're safe, John, and then they. They um, they escape and fly away in a plane, and then I love this bit where they're flying over New York and they see the lights just go out in New York.
1: Yeah, and they're yeah. like, mm, I actually really like that bit.
0: The looters have collapsed. Yeah, it collapses. And the lights then go to out, make the it collapses. even better, to make it even better, uh, they hear like other planes which are in the air talking to them, and it turns out almost everyone from from Galt's Gulch like Midas Mulligan. Judge Narraganskett or whatever he's called, um, Ellis Wyatt, Ken Dan- Daniger all these titans of industry <laughs> yeah, yeah. also went out and were camped out in positions around this black site prison. And in the event that the the Avengers of objectivism were unable to free, uh, free John Galt, then the rest of these titans of industry would have launched an assault... On the prison. Yeah, that's fucking incredible. I was just, just it's fucking so incredible. good. Just fucking, it's fucking—it's just incredible. All the
1: capitalists fucking get up in
0: arms. <laughs> all of the capitalists would have launched an assault <laughs> on this bastion of, of parasitism. <laughs> and then, okay, so... It's so fucking ends absurd. With, um, it's so
1: fucking absurd. It's so fucking good.
0: Eddie, Eddie Willers, though. So Eddie Willers has been in San Francisco putting down... Basically, there's been unrest in California. California's seceding and there's a civil war there and it's threatening one of the Taggart transcontinental terminals. So Eddie Willis flies there and he says not a tearful goodbye, but an almost tearful goodbye to Dagny where he basically confesses his love to her. (laughs) And she just goes like, yeah, thanks, mate. Go fix that problem in San Fran. Probably won't see you again. Fuck,
1: boy. She doesn't give a shit. (laughs)
0: She's a, break, she just not give a fuck breaking breaking hearts
1: guy. all over the fucking country.
0: <laughs> Smoking darts and breaking hearts. That's Dagny Tag it.
1: <laughs> Smoking darts and breaking dart. Breaking hearts. That's so good. <laughs> So what he we need we I want to get a fucking t-shirt made of that. That's a great one. Smoking hearts and breaking hearts. <laughs> and just and just on the t-shirt I want it to be a c- a, picture, a picture of Iron Rand smoking a cigarette. With on a it. fucking dollar with a golden dollar sign on it.
0: With a dollar a big, si- with fat a Bitcoin, Bitcoin sign with a fucking cigarette.
1: Yeah, golden billet. And maybe some like I don't know, like some fucking Bitcoin laser eyes or some shit.
0: <laughs> yeah, the laser eyes. <laughs> So, Eddie Willis' story ends on a, a bit a cliffhanger. You don't know what happens to him because he's on this train, take a con- transcontinental train, and it breaks down in the middle of Arizona in a desert. No one on the train is competent. No one knows how to fix anything. So, it, the, the train's broken down and a caravan of horse-drawn carriages moves by. And picks up everyone else on the train. But Eddie will not give up, uh, tag it transcontinental. So he just stays with the train. He's like, look, if I die here, fine. And we don't know what happens to Eddie. And I find it interesting. This point really drives home what Ayn Rand was trying to say about people who are rational but not smart. In that they are dependent upon objectivist heroes. So Eddie can't fix the train by himself. He can't make it run. That's what Dagny can do, but not Eddie. So people like Eddie are good people. They're rational. But ultimately, they rely on objectivists or upon intelligent objectivists like Dagny. (laughs) And it's left ambiguous. It may be uh, the... The Galt's Gulch Brigade will come in and save Eddie, but maybe he'll just starve to death in the train in the middle of Arizona. Dagny, though, lives happily ever after. She she, she makes she's it to just the Gulch
1: Ragnar fucked and, from all directions and, and fucking Galt, uh, John Galt, and yeah, just just having a big fuck fest. Is she the only woman? Yeah, exactly. And she's and the only she, woman She'll there. let
0: Frances go smell her feet or something because she's feeling generous. <laughs> well, not generous. <laughs> I mean, like for her own. For her own uh, amusement, I think she's the only for woman in Gold's Galt, Gulch. No, there was there was one. Um, there's an author mm. who was there and who who does things like likes plot, and that's why she's in Gold's Gulch. And then I think there's an actress who's Ragnar's wife, <laughs> who's also a woman. But uh, it's a it's a sausage it's sausage fest. And 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 if at any rate,
1: Dagny's still the fucking. Uh, like alpha female. oh she's, she's the definitely
0: the alpha. Oh no doubt yeah 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 <laughs> well she snagged John Galt. John John Galt has been simping for her for a decade plus. plus <laughs> twelve <So> years yeah <laughs> she,
2: she's
0: she's the, the queen bitch. So of, funny of Galt, so Galt. Fu- Fucking funny she she did tie up the plot points in a satisfying way at the end of the book. Alright in terms of themes I think, so I've gone over already my way of viewing much of this book along this, these axes of rational, irrational, intelligent, unintelligent. So we've got intelligent, irrational characters like Dr. Stadler who end up badly. You've got rational but unintelligent characters like Eddie Willers. You've got unintelligent, irrational characters like Lillian, Hank Reardon's ex-wife by the end of the book. And then you've got the optimised ubermenschen who are yeah, rational yeah, and yeah, intelligent, yeah, yeah, yeah. like basically all the people who live in, in God's culture. Got a few things. It is interesting what she thinks of love and romance. So these come up a lot in the book. And she she obviously regards love, sex romance and pleasure all is extremely important but ultimately they can only they're only available to people who acknowledge reality and love has to be earned she um she has a few moments where you'll have a character like for example Lillian so it's it's illustrative to compare Lillian's view of love with that of Dagny's so there's this point in the book where Lillian tells hank Reardon, her husband that to love someone who's deserving of it is not impressive and it's it's not anything virtuous because what virtue is there what sacrifice is there in giving someone what they deserve it's in fact loving someone who is no, undeserving of love is virtuous and the more virtuous it is the the less deserving they are or mm. To love someone even less deserving of love is even more virtuous because you are making a sacrifice. And Ayn Rand believes that making a sacrifice is a bad thing. Yeah, living for And this is compared with with Dagny's idea of love in that she believes that you only love things that are earned. So, for example, the first time she had sex, she loses her virginity in this great scene where she and Francisco de Anconia have a tennis match. It's a really hard-fought tennis match. And they're, they're really trying to beat each other. And she wins. And then they have sex. She's, <laughs> she has seen that Francisco de Anconia is worthy of, of love and worthy of having sex with and worthy of desire because he's so good at everything, including tennis. But then she finds Hank Reardon, who's even better. And so she, she, she starts having sex with him. And then she finds John Galt, Who's even more worthy and starts having sex with him. And there's no sacrifice at all. Instead of loving someone who doesn't deserve love, she just transfers her love to the person who's even more worthy of it. And at least in Ayn Rand's telling, this is this is based upon an acknowledgement of reality. This is rational. <laughs> yeah. And she does say at several points that the, the people, well, I was going to say person, but really people, because Ayn Rand wasn't a one-man kind of girl. The people whom you have sex with are an expression of your values, a very concrete expression of your values. And if you're just roving around for the next muscle-bound, super handsome, objectivist superhero, then your values have got to be pretty good, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, so funny what's that thing that the red pillars always go on about hypergamy
0: hypergamy <laughs> yeah hypergamy except you're optimizing for objectivism <laughs>
1: objectivist uh, superheroes like giga chads like Rid and michael saylor <laughs> 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 just getting all that fucking objectivist pussy michael
0: saylor is john gold <laughs> Actually, what about her view of women?
2: Because
0: I've heard from several places that Ayn Rand was just fundamentally misogynistic. I think it's much more Mm. complicated than that.
1: Yeah, because she seems difficult to agree
0: with. She seems to dislike this. She calls it femininity, but femininity and being a woman for her don't seem to be the same thing. So she regards femininity as this passivity. An unwillingness to take responsibility or make decisions. And almost this decorativeness that Ayn Rand herself didn't really seem to identify with. And the women in Ayn Rand's stories who were good characters also don't seem to identify with it. So I think you can take the character of Lillian as being what Ayn Rand regarded as femininity to an absurd degree. She just, all she does is really mooch off her husband insult her husband she won't take responsibility for anything even to the point where she'll insult Hank Reardon and then when he gets angry she'll start laughing and say oh you shouldn't take everything so seriously it was just a joke and eventually she's kicked to the curb because Hank Reardon meets a real woman in Dagny Taggart and then the characters the characteristics of taking responsibility for things of producing of being rational Ayn Rand seems to describe as masculine. And again, masculinity doesn't have to mean being a man. For example, James Taggart doesn't demonstrate any of these masculine characteristics. And so I think that's where some of the the charges of being misogynistic come from in Ayn Rand, in Ayn Rand's stories. I don't think actually Mm. for her femininity and Mm. being a woman... Were exactly the same thing.
1: Yeah, and I, I think that hmm, maybe uh, like there are aspects of uh, Dagny that are very feminine, and
3: that she highlights. It's just not her entire character, and
1: uh, yeah, and it seems as though what if well, as far as I can see i might be wrong about this um ayn rand is railing against
3: what you call it like the mono um
1: the monolithic view of femininity and women and especially if she's coming from like russia and going into america in the 50s like probably wasn't that much space for like what was acceptable behavior stuff for women so
3: I think it's
1: not, I don't think it's misogyny. I think she's extremely like incendiary. She like really wants to get up and like, like make a strong point about things. Um, and I also think that she like, she, she also wanted to embrace like sexuality, like female sexuality. So
0: Yeah. Yeah. I know. I, I, and I it's also say throughout it the book Dagny Taggart is Like you'll have some Invariably irrational Characters dismiss Dagny because she's a woman And then Dagny just Leaves them behind in the dust Because she's such an objectivist So Ired is making the point that If you're a woman you can achieve things You just need the right mindset You just need that Objectivist need, mindset Yeah you
1: need that objectivist mindset mate <laughs>
0: Yeah. I mean I don't, know, I don't have much more to say about this other than mm. I think the accusations of her being anti women are pretty unfair. No, no. I guess so, like the rape scenes are also brought out uh-huh. in favour of that. I think like this book Ayn Rand really got off on that. I,
1: I interpreted this book as like a feminist book, personally. And I hadn't read like a feminist critique of Ayn Rand. Yeah. But when I was reading I was like, Oh, she's a feminist.
0: Yeah. I expect most of the people criticising her for being anti-women haven't actually read her books. Yeah. or Because yeah. It's, it's hard to make that case having read Atlas Shrugged and while this is not an episode on The Fountainhead, also having read The Fountainhead. Value and money. Do you have much to say on her view of value? A huge amount.
1: Just, uh... Hmm.
0: <laughs> much of what she says about money, actually, I, I quite liked. She was saying the fundamental unit of value is is production and thought, not theft. Yeah, fine. And and she included in theft just like printing more money and then saying telling people that it's valuable. Yeah, taxation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Money is a a tool of productive people ultimately because it's the root of its value is in producing things. Yeah, not taking things. Yeah, I did like the quote: "Money is a living power that dies without its root." So without this root of making stuff, money dies. Yeah,
1: well, the classic way to um, put it is like, um, like printing more money doesn't create more wealth;
3: just redistributes the wealth. Yeah,
0: and you can of. see where von Mises would would just froth it over yeah. this. <laughs> <laughs> In terms, actually, so this is, this is an interesting thing she does. She says that basically everything that is objectivist is a philosophy of life. It's embracing your vital life force. It is living for yourself. It, it, it's embracing your, your desires and living for your own joy. And doing the opposite is the philosophy of death and decay and not building things. It's a philosophy of entropy. And I did. I found this pretty funny because, like, it. I mean, it's Iron Rand, so everything is put in the most unsubtle terms, the most like brick to the head terms that she possibly can. It's your. What's a good thing being alive? So my philosophy is that of life. And people who don't agree with me, people who like things like income tax, subscribe <laughs> to a philosophy of death. And there's this great scene. It's when John Galt is being tortured. In witnessing this, James Taggart eventually realises that he wants to die, that everything he's doing is because he doesn't embrace Mm. life but only embraces Mm. death, and he's just, like, suddenly disarmed and all of the life force goes out of him and he just wanders out of the room and disappears. (laughs) I found that so funny. Yeah, I like that scene. (laughs) Something, actually, that I don't think Ayn Rand really addresses is the problem of violence. No, not not in this book. So she she says that, at least in this book, she so I haven't read any of her straight philosophical texts. I've only read her novels. But at least in this, she seems to be saying that between two people who are rational, there will never be this sort of conflict that could lead to violence. And she also seems to rule out the possibility of someone who is who is rational and intelligent and who wants to dominate others using violence. So I'm not sure why they couldn't exist. For example, a John Galt who wants to achieve his aims with violence. And I think for her, she gets out of it by saying, well, if you're rational, then you don't want to use violence. But I don't think that maps onto the world outside of Atlas Shrugged very well.
1: Yeah. It's um like when I looked at her interviews, she Brings up like you know, not coercing others, not doing things to others without their consent, that sort of stuff, um, which is kind of like standard libertarian objectivist thing, uh, like um ethic around non non coercion, but it's um it's kind of just uh how do I put it, just like this is how you should act. And is is it an injunction, or is it like what you said, where it's just like if you're rational, you'll see what, what I'm talking about, and you will act like this. And which you know, I find unconvincing. Like, yes, I agree, you shouldn't like. I I don't like coercing people, and I'd prefer it if people didn't coerce me, <laughs> and it'd be good to have a wor- world with less coercion. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I guess it might just be one of those things that is is it almost like an article of faith or something. Like I, I I've never seen anybody be able to like go beyond just saying like this is a good thing or that you should behave like this. But yeah, maybe that's like the limit of what you can say with those sorts of like ethical ethical claims.
0: Yeah. Cause at least in the context of objectivism, you really shouldn't take things as articles of faith. They should hmm. all be derived from or maybe a rational perspective if I, if I, of the world. But if I uh, tried to uh,
3: like, think what is
1: like productive like if if you're an objectivist and you value productivity then like maybe there's an argument that coercing people is not maximally productive or like doing something destructive like war or theft like that's just that's a destructive thing to do not a productive thing to do so it's inherently anti-objectivist
0: i guess i guess because she really seems to be saying in this book that that there is no you you can't be productive and she calls them looters so you can't be productive and be a looter at the same time it's either one or the other yeah. but i'm not sure why you, you couldn't have someone who is productive or a, for example an organization of people that is productive and makes things but makes things such that they can dominate others and take their stuff mm. cuz she this is something that she does throughout the book is she's very very binary with things either you are rational And behave in this prescribed way, or you are irrational, and you must behave in this way. Yeah. And within the context of Atlas, shrugged, it works, but I don't think it maps very neatly to the external Mm -hmm. world, like to to the objective world.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Do you have much else to say about Um, with regard to the
1: uh, like the coercion stuff? not really i guess it, it's just uh it's just one of those things where um is it there, there's always going to be is there always going to be some sort of axiom like that i don't know if there's if there always be those sorts of things except i've not seen like an ethical system of thought that doesn't have some some something like that <laughs> somewhere in it if you poke around enough
0: yeah what about more dru- more generally about atlas Drugged? because i feel like i don't uh, I don't have much more to say. I can give more examples of things I've already said, <laughs> but I don't have much I think it's a, like, I really
1: liked it. I thought it was a great book. Um, with the caveats of like the criticisms that, that, we've, that I've made um, already. But like, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> Gets me pumped up, makes me want to like go and like make something cool. You know, like, go and be like, yeah, fuck yeah, let's make some sick software or whatever the fuck. Um, and just, like, do it. And I, I think what I really appreciated about her, if I can, or about her or about this book, is just, like, about... And um, in, in praise of Ayn Rand, I'd say, like, she's unapologetic about just, like, defending the value of things like pursuing self-interest doing great things for the sake of doing them like regarding people as an end in and of themselves and regarding like doing great things like great literature or great architecture or whatever like it doesn't need to be justified uh, from like some oh this is good for the world it's just good in and of itself because the person who created it thought it was a beautiful thing to do and i think like in a world where there is an overwhelming well at least from my perspective like just an an intense amount of like collectivization and there's the ever-present threat of like more and more taxes more and more inflation uh more and more like regulations and red tape and more and more people who want to like do things on your behalf without your consent for your for your benefit apparent benefit like to have people like Ayn Rand or uh you know von Mises or whoever or uh they're I guess they're like they can be abrasive, but I think like they've made really important contributions to the world um and i i like I really valued that I think like more people would benefit i think if they like didn't apologize for like doing doing the things that they think are beautiful
0: yeah, I'd agree with the yeah with that point that I do like in Ayn Rand that she really celebrates human intellectual achievements yeah. Of, yeah, of of doing things like, okay, with knowledge, we can build a bridge and move something heavier than the bridge over a, a gap. That That is cool. I also like that she does say that you shouldn't apologise to people for being... Smart or hardworking or successful, because there is, I think a lot of it is motivated by envy. I think there are a lot of people who see someone doing something really cool and feel envious and reflexively want to dislike them. So in Australia, there's tall puppy syndrome, which is... Yeah, it's terrible. I hate... I hate very it. present I hate. and a real... I think, I think it's And a, a really gross way of viewing the world and living life. Yeah, yeah. There's this- I really like that Ayn Rand, very... Bluntly says, you shouldn't do that. If you're doing something well, you should be proud. Yeah, she pushes back against that. I like that a lot. She says,
1: like, there's this interview with her where she, they're talking about, like, the you know like raising children or something. She's like, you should teach your child to not be ashamed of their successes. Like, you should, like, celebrate them. Allow them to, like, you know, if they do something good, like, let them own it. Like, that's awesome. And I was thinking, like, I don't know, there were, you know, like... Moments when I was younger where like definitely, you know, like parents or like my mom was encouraging, but there are other moments where it's like, I think if I, at least if I looked at it through the perspective of Ayn Rand, I think like there was an unnecessary amount of just like, um, self, um, like minimization, self minimization, uh, unnecessarily. It's like, okay, I don't, like, I don't want to be like, like gloat and shit. I don't want to be obnoxious at the same time. It's like, if you do something well, you do something good, like own it. You know, because you're gonna have to own it when you fuck up, <laughs> and you're not gonna have a choice then. Uh, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I think I think that's right. It is also. So I do think she's frequently mischaracterized. She seems to be often characterized by people who have never read something she said as wanting to just crush the poor. Yeah, I don't. I don't. Whereas she doesn't say that, that in this book. I think in this book she really seems to be saying that. You should just let people who are good at making things do yeah. that. So it's the John Galt thing that he says: just get. I think it's get the hell out of my way. Yeah. As you said, very abrasively put. But what she's effectively saying is, like, I'm, they shouldn't go around just dominating everyone. But you should let them make stuff without interfering. And to be fair, if like, they make you feel inadequate, when when there are people
1: like sure, okay, like I'm gonna put aside like really like. People who put their creativity towards like dominating others, like certain dictators, very talented actually, sure very smart, talented people. Yeah,
0: which she doesn't acknowledge.
1: Yeah. yeah, very smart, talented people like Putin, like guys probably like a fucking workhorse, like super smart and stuff. But he's just putting it towards yeah. vicious ends. But like then there's other people who you know you might think he's an asshole, like Elon Musk. You know it's like oh yeah, okay, like, I don't like him. As, you might not like him as a person, but motherfuckers out there like literally like trying mm-hmm. to get us to Mars. And it's like, do we really like, yeah, it's
0: like, I wouldn't have him over for dinner, No, but and it's like I have to acknowledge he's a very, he, very capable engineer
1: and business. And he's and important. Like we need, we need somebody trying to do things like that. We need like, we need, we need people who are like, who are willing to sacrifice 80 hours a week for 40 years and like destroy their families and stuff and you know for these crazy visions like the steve jobs and stuff who are going to build these amazing organizations and create these technologies um and yeah like i don't i don't necessarily think that that means that they can just do whatever they want you know (laughs) like they you know like harm other people but it at the same time it's like well why why would we get in the way of these people who are trying to do productive things
0: yeah and this is where some of Ayn Rand's very black and white thinking I think comes to hurt her. So I'm willing to ignore to or regard it within the context of her novels as a literary mm-hmm. device that productive people or these objectivist rational superheroes don't have n- negative effects or that there are no negative externalities from them working. Whereas In life outside of Atlas Shrugged, I think just by (laughs) virtue of the fact that people pursue, if people are pursuing their own ends, those ends can differ from each other. So your objective as superhero just doing what they want might have negative externalities, and Ayn Rand doesn't really acknowledge that. Yeah. Which is why I guess you can't just take what is said in Atlas Shrugged and try to apply it one-to-one to to the world outside of the novel. As if I
1: had to sort of come up with a framework for thinking about it uh, I might think about it in terms of like a pendulum swinging and like mm. um I don't know it's got a bunch of different tethers on it and each of those tethers is is pulling it in a different direction and like I think that there's tense and do I think this in general or is this just because I've read Alice Shrugged I don't know like tentatively I, I think that like over the course of our lifetime at least the last like 10 years or so since I finished high school and started like got out, got out into the rest of the world. Like the collectivization ethics stuff in the culture in like laws and and stuff like seems to be, um, increasing. I don't know. That's just a very vague sense I have and that we actually need like people, uh, whether it's through objectivism or libertarianism or just classical liberalism or some other things like, uh, ad- like advocating for, like, hey, we ne- we still need a safeguard, like, sa- safeguard, uh, like individuals going out there and and trying to do these things.
0: When you say collect- collectivism, like, what sorts of collectivism do you mean? For example, reducing someone to their group, race, group, gender, gender, or, or sexuality. Of some sort? So increasing or on the business side, increasing regulations, telling people how they can run a particular business. Yeah, both. Business. What are the yeah, sort yeah of- both.
1: And, and even okay. things like the collectivization response to like in Australia to COVID, um, like there's no like sense of like low level granular community level like decision making, like individual family community level decision making. It was just like at the state. There wasn't, I, know, I guess like federal wasn't as much, but like the state level stuff, it's just like, I don't know, like, obviously, I, I left Victoria because I, I disagree with the way they handled that so much. Like, I'm just never going back to Victoria ever again. Um, and so, uh, like, a big part of the reason why I left Victoria is because of their response to COVID. Like, I just don't want to live in a state where they're going to put... Where they're going to do that to me and the people. So... And the, the reason why... Like, the, all the reasons why they brought that stuff in is was, was all collectivist reasons.
0: Uh, as in, like, as an individual, if you are willing to take the risk of getting infected then that's your Yeah, there's no
1: scope for that. There's not, I am okay putting myself at risk no. No you know. We had fucking the Australian federal police rolling around like North Fitzroy dude <laughs> like fuck that. No fuck that. Yeah, no. Fuck that. I left that ne- ne- never move back to Victoria. Fuck them. Yeah, so that's that and it's it's worse when the collectivization comes through the state because then it's bureaucratic and it's and it's heartless and it's soulless. You know, there's other, like, less institutional, like, more sort of just, like, implicit collectivization, which is also a a thing that I, like, I struggle with, but through the state is really dangerous.
0: And at what level of collectivization would you accept? Because I think a degree of it is necessary for people to live in large groups. Like, you need a, for example, say, a cultural form of collectivism in that people need to have some shared social mores some sense of belonging to something similar for if if it's a shared culture or a shared language or a shared state or nationality yeah i mean i'm not saying uh, you need to give me a, a defined <laughs> point at which it becomes unacceptable but which forms of collectivism would you find or do you find acceptable and which ones are you mean you've given examples of ones that you don't like
1: yeah yeah, yeah. i um I, I think that like well, I'm, I mean, I'm just ad-libbing here. That's a good question. So I don't know if I'll be able to form a terribly coherent response. Um, like, well, firstly, like it being voluntary is important. So like a voluntary association. So yeah. like I'm, I'm voluntarily, like I, don't know, I move to a community. I want to be part of the community or I go to say I don't know, a church or w- whatever religious group you might be a part of, or <laughs> I join a particular book club's discord. So there's that first thing. And um (laughs) preferably if there's a mechanism for like like voluntarily delegating like like my participation to like whatever the decision-making mechanism is you know like if it's if it's part of church you know like standard Anglican church or something it's like a sort of like implicit understanding that like the church has like an, an organizational structure and that there's a leadership and all that sort of stuff um but Uh, So, there's a lot of collectivization where um, in and of the fact that I I happen to be a member of a particular group, whether it's my ethnic group, like being an Aboriginal Australian, or whether it's my nation-state identity, because I'm an Australian, or whatever, um, where other people think that they can think or make decisions on my behalf, and they use that collective label... That group membership as a way to to speak on mm-hmm. my behalf or other people's behalf, and it's like, like I don't know, like say some uh, indigenous politician in Canberra makes or like in Victor- the Victorian state government says something like, "This is what Indigenous people in Victoria think." It's like you fucking you haven't spoken to me. Like how dare you fucking think that just because I'm Indigenous that uh, you you can you know what I think? It's completely inappropriate. Uh, but, but Mm. because especially in indigenous stuff, there's a lot of collectivization, um, but it's across like, there's lots of other things like, so I think like there's, I don't know how you would like articulate this properly, but there's some aspect of like people abstracting away the individual into like just a, a, a member of a set and then therefore ascribing like whatever point of view or, ethical, whatever, to that person, even if they it's, like, an implicit membership of the set, not an actual, like, voluntary, explicit, like, I signed up to be a part of this thing. I don't know. Does that answer your question, or did I, like, dodge the question?
0: <laughs> no, no, well, it's, like, it's a really it's hard, hard question. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, I can't answer it for sure myself. It sounds to me that for you, the ability to exit is important. Yeah, voluntary
1: exit, like... Like, I can't exit being an Indigenous person. Like, I can, I can mm. like, legally I can de-identify in, in Australia. Like, if you're identified as an Aboriginal person legally, I could stop doing that. But, like, sort of like, you know, within my social circles and stuff, it's like, I'm Indigenous. <laughs> or, you know, if I wanted to leave Australia, I could exit that and give up my Australian citizenship or whatever. Um,
0: yeah. I guess yeah. in, so sort of in a Randian paradigm you'd say you know, the reality of you being indigenous is not like that's not something you can say oh, i now change the objective reality of who my ancestors were yeah. but you can sh- like the the thing that can well, be can exited is someone else or should be able to be exited is someone else presuming to speak on your behalf yeah, yeah. like that's the that's the constructed yeah, yeah, and and there's so, a, that's not based on okay, well, I'm related to these people. And there's a that's based on someone presuming to speak for you. And
1: there's a lot of things in identity politics, like indigenous stuff is like one subset of identity politics. There's other like peoples of color, you know, all over the world, or like um, like I don't know, like the LGBT stuff or whatever. Where like you see it on Twitter, like oh, you know, somebody's speaking on behalf of trans people and they're not trans themselves. It's like you can't speak on behalf of, of trans people. like how. Like, this is completely fucking ridiculous. You can't assume that because somebody's a member of some group that you therefore know, like, what their perspective of, is of it. And, uh, you know, like, Chappelle, Dave Chappelle gave a really good example of this, like, where he had a, a trans fan who, like, supported him and, like, he, uh, he or she, like, disagreed with, like, a lot of stuff that was going on, the trans stuff. And when other people in that, like, community found out about it, like, they harassed her online until the point that she like committed suicide and it's like okay well this person is one of you they're a trans person they don't hold your views and for that you're going to vilify them like this is just uh like this is very dangerous form of collectivization like just because you happen to be a member of a set doesn't mean that you like along with, like one particular axis doesn't mean that like uh, like you can be your your like perspectives on the world can be summarized by other people making assumptions about that that group.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: It's really dangerous.
0: Yeah. Okay. No, thanks for that. It's yeah, I get what you mean now by collectivization. Yeah. yeah it's so much broader than just for example, Marxism and saying, okay, well collectivization is Marxism. Yeah, it's a much That's broader one form of
1: it. It's very that's also a very dangerous form it, yeah. of it. But there's lots of different forms of that. Marxism seems to be a particularly vicious form of it. it over the last hundred years or so, but there are other forms of it. yeah and and we like the only the so only antidote to that is individualism as far as i'm aware, like I mean I might be wrong, I don't know about that, but mm. like as far as i'm aware
0: <laughs> so given all this, I mean I kind of expect I know what you'll say to this. would you recommend Atlas shrugged um, and if so, to whom
1: yeah like i hmm. Uh, if you're, if you're, I would strongly recommend this book if you're somebody who's interested in building things. If you're, if you're an artist, if you're, I mean, even if you're an, like I've got artist friends who are like very left-leaning and, you know, I would even say to them, like, look, put your fucking like leftist stuff aside for a second. And like, read this, this is somebody who cares about like the grandeur of the human spirit and won't fucking back down from it and just says it's good you know, maybe for an artist, read The Fountainhead instead or something. But, like, uh, like just, I think people out there who are builders are constantly being held back and villainized. You know, like, the environmentalist movement is just, like, just 20, 30 years of nonstop propaganda against hydrocarbons or against 50 years of propaganda against nuclear research and development. And now it's like, okay, now we've got gene Drive. And it's just like, okay more propaganda again, like no actual engagement with like, what are these technologies? How do they work? What are the explanations? What are the actual risks? How can we mitigate the risk? Nothing like cold, sober, that's, it's just all uh, hysterical panic, precautionary principle, suffocating people who are creating knowledge and solving problems. Like the people out there, the engineers, the scientists, the architects, the painters, the hackers, uh, the entrepreneurs like they need these sorts of books that like remind them that hey, it is it is good it's virtuous to go and build things to go and make things to go and create.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with that strongly. Probably my favourite part of this book is the is that she does say making stuff is cool and good and you should be proud to yeah. do it. In terms of recommending it, I'd say. Read it and skip the speeches. Every yeah. <laughs> time someone starts giving a speech, flick over it and just skip that bit. You you don't need to read it. I, I um. So given, sorry. go. Given that, I'd say, pr- yeah, I'd probably actually recommend it. Also, just because the plot is this combination of being, again, the exception being the speeches, <laughs> pretty well paced, like pretty uh, entertaining. But also just with absolutely hilarious concepts. It just such so some of the situations are so ridiculous. Like the Galt's gulch <laughs> is just so funny. It just, it's a, a genuinely fun plot. I've idea. got
1: I've got two um I've got two more like classes of people that I'd say like should probably read it. But and then I've got a question for you. Um, so one of the classes of people I think should read it is also like, um, one of them is uh, like, I think that like young Australian people should read this. Like, um,
0: Oh, to get over the tall poppy. all the tall
1: poppy bullshit, man. Like it's a bunch of garbage. We don't need that. I
0: fucking hate tall poppies. Fuck all that. That's just, I I lose so much respect for someone when I see that. Yeah,
1: Yeah. it's garbage. Like, what is the point of that? We want like in Australia or anywhere in the world, not just Australia, anywhere in the fucking world. Like we want great doctors, we want great scientists, we want great writers, we want great cartoonists. Like we want people to go and do whatever like art is to them to go and make that art and it benefits them. They get to have a meaningful vocation and it benefits every, everybody fucking else. <laughs> you know? um, so like in Australia, I think fuck off this tall poppy stuff. And if like Ayn Rand or like, I don't know, maybe some other, like adjacent texts or whatever or like people can like help snap that shit out of the Australian zeitgeist yeah that'd be good and the other type of people I'd recommend it to is just people who are interested in sci-fi like I do think it's a good sci-fi book I think what's really interesting about her sci-fi is that she picked rather like interesting technologies to make because like if you read Heinlein or like some cypherpunk shit you know like um uh, snow crash or yeah, something like
0: Yeah, it's something.
1: like really heavy 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 like on, on the tech but this is like it's not so heavy on the tech but it's interesting her choice of technology like the choice of like a metal mm. is a really interesting technology to like create for a world because like the two, two of the most important metals I can give you three unbelievably important metals like copper for moving electrical energy, aluminium light enough to create things like airplanes that we can use for like lighter than air travel and steel, steel, steel that we can create, like all these structures out of that are unbelievably strong. Like those three metals, we don't have them, we don't have modern civilization. So she had, a, she was really yeah. insightful about that and like the motor and stuff. Like, really interesting, really interesting sci fi.
0: Big problem I have with that though <laughs> is that Dagny Taggart. Is running, running a train service a pub Like mass transport Buy a fucking car you cunt <laughs> <also>. That's bullshit <laughs> True So my question for you was um, <laughs> Dagny Taggart should have been making Teslas
1: <laughs> My question for you is kind of like An in- inverse of what you said Or like kind of like throw it back to you Like since you've lived now in uh, Australia And Czech a lot and as Czech was like a uh, former is a, is a former communist country uh, but also I mean you've done a fair bit of travel to other countries you know like so I guess given your experience with like post-communist countries and like uh like you know the European Union and like the looming threat of Russia and all this sort of shit like do you have some perspectives on uh this broad range of like I suppose memes like the the battle between the individual and the collective, or in particular the individual and the state.
0: So while Ayn Rand can be quite obnoxious in describing everything that she agrees with as rational and everything she doesn't agree with as irrational, I think some some of the background contributing to that view is still present here. So. You you do have a group of older people, some of whom oh, want a really return of communism yeah. because they basically didn't have to do anything. Like you were just given yeah. stuff, and like yeah, there were pretty intense restrictions on speech, where you could travel, people you could associate with, etc. But some people just don't care about that, and they want to return yeah. to it. However, other people, who, you know, people whom I'd regard as more <laughs> rational, <laughs> said that one of the biggest problems is that. Communism could last as long as it did Because it, like, before it became Communist then Czechoslovakia Was highly industrialised Very wealthy mm. like The most industrialised part of the Austro-Hungarian yeah. Empire Before that empire fell apart in the aftermath of World yeah. War I And so there was a lot Of wealth that had been generated That could effectively just be stolen and Redistributed yeah, so fucked up. <laughs> You can't do that for very long like there is actually a limit to how much stuff you can take and redistribute and the problem was it just it wasn't productive yeah and even if some people get nostalgic about the good old days you actually just can't do that Like you it this sounds dumb to say but if you don't make stuff there's just not gonna be stuff yeah you you need to make it and (laughs) <laughs> a lot of a lot of people here do have a, probably a better recognition of that than in Australia or mm. even in America. Yeah,
1: Australians I think are disconnected uh, from it. because
0: uh, those are countries where people sort of take for granted that you just have a more productive mm. way of doing mm. things. Do I think within the space of ideas, capital, the capitalist systems that we have instantiated at the moment are just the most productive way to do things? That we can possibly imagine. Nah, uh, no, not. there are probably better nah, ways. Better. But 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 it, it's better than at least the the Bolshevism that used to be present here. Yeah, hmm. and so hmm. I think a lot of people, like for example, my father-in-law, would be extremely receptive to <laughs> Atlas Shrugged. Yeah, he's fucking he's a champion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So I get I. I'd recommend this book, but when someone's reading it and they want to skip bits, like, feel free to skip 20 pages. You'll, yeah, you'll be fine. okay.
1: <laughs> I, I did have one more question for you. Do you think, you know, like, this is, as I said, like, obviously it's a fiction book and it's hyper real. And as we discussed earlier, like, it's also a warning or a, maybe even a description. It's a warning of the what could happen if what she saw what was happening in America continued to keep on happening. And actually, like Hayek famously, you know, he rode the road to serfdom. He was saying the same thing. Von Mises was saying the same thing. Um, you know, uh, Milton Friedman was saying the same thing. Like, um, and now the Bitcoiners in this day and age, you know, like oh, before the Bitcoiners came on, like the libertarians, like in, in America hmm. were saying like, hey, this is like, have more and more, they broadly call it socialism. I don't know if you want to just like lump it all under like that heading of socialism, but this idea of like redistributive, like whatever. And at the end of the day, if you don't have the wealth to redistribute, you're just going to be carving up a pie and it's going to get smaller and smaller. and You're going to destroy like the civilization. Um. So I was wondering whilst I was reading this book and this part of the reason why I like, I'm so into Bitcoin is because I have this, overwhelming like maybe it's, ira- maybe it's an irrational fear that like the political ratchet is towards increasing all the things that these people warn us about and we don't have any way out like or at least I don't feel as if I have any way out like I can't vote for these things in Australia like, I, neither of the major parties represent like my views on this and so um, yeah I just was wondering if you think that any of her diagnoses were were re- relevant or at least maybe even today like in america or australia or, or in the eu where you are like how much do you think they're actually like describing things patterns that are actually happening
0: so at least i think in a representative democracy there is definitely that ratchet apart from anything else people like being given stuff and don't like stuff being taken yeah. away it's so- a real the bias is very much towards giving people 20, things yeah. and not taking things away or you'll get yeah. voted out. <laughs> more broadly, I, th- I think that probably some degree of redistribution is necessary, apart from anything else, that it prevents violence. So <laughs> yeah, interesting. I think there are certain people who are just more generative than other people yeah. and they, like, they're going to accumulate resources and other people won't. And if that goes on for long enough and you have people who are really disenfranchised and living in penury, you'll get violence. Mm. I also don't want to live in a society where you have certain people living in, in misery, poverty. like completely immiserated. Yeah. Like that's, that's not a place that I want and to live. you can live see in. that's really bad so both for in the, reason in the US,
1: right? Like in some parts of the US, like they have not fucking figured that balance out. <laughs> you know.
0: Yeah, but even in Australia, yeah. there are parts of Australia where... Like, say, rural Victoria, yeah. there are plenty of places like Seymour or Benalla where it's not mm, Yeah, Seymour's pretty, great. Seymour's <laughs> pretty rough. <It's>... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I think there's just for stability. Mm. So, of course, yeah, you want people to be generating things and you want people to be rewarded for making stuff. And I believe very strongly in that. But even if you're just looking at it from the perspective of how do we optimise for people generating things? Well, you need a degree of stability. You, you're not going to be very generative if there's chaos. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, you just need, oh, at least with how things have been run so far and the current set of ideas that we have, you need some redistribution yeah. to prevent instability in a political system. Yeah. I wonder where that line is. And how much you do yeah. that. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I don't know where that line is. If I did, I would be much better not. Uh, than I feel like that's just going to be one of those it's problems a, that's just going really to persist
1: for the rest of
0: human civilization.
1: I don't, I don't think that's a problem that gets solved. Yeah, well, it's also,
0: assuming there is a point, it's probably a dynamic yeah. point yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah. It's going to be changing based on the context within which a society exists. So you, you're probably never going to get a perfect Yeah,
1: I, I do think that like at the end of the day, though, like what we want is we want net, creation. So at the end of the day, like, at least like following my, like, yeah. uh, you know, I'm not going to fucking do a pop or a Deutsch trend now, but like anybody who's listened to this fucking show knows that like, I'm all about that knowledge creation shit and all wealth <laughs> all wealth ultimately comes down to creating new knowledge. Um, and so if we live in a society where we're not creating new knowledge, we're not solving the problems that we need to, and we don't have net like wealth creation problem solving where we're solving more problems than, and, When we're not losing solutions to problems that we've already solved, Uh, like that, we like that's extremely fucking important. (laughs) We don't we don't want to live in a society where all of a sudden, like we're we're like going back going backwards
0: along those those axes. Also, if you're in a society which is stagnant in terms of making new ideas, any wealth gain is going to be zero sum. Yeah, yeah, there's yeah, not right. new wealth being created. If one person gets more wealth, it's going to be zero sum. Someone else is yeah. We need it to
1: be like eating.
0: so you, and again, that's just a a recipe for mass yeah. Violence. So like for in order for any so also re- for,
1: redistribution to like be functional, like whatever the amount you say is like okay, this is like how much we need in order to like have stability mm-hmm. and like get rid of you know the abject poverty or whatever that we want to get rid of that sort of stuff. Like whatever that level might be, like. Um, if, it's, if it's in the context of a positive-sum society where there's new ideas being created and new knowledge and problems being solved, it's like, okay, well, it can tolerate that, um, some degree of that. But if you don't have that because things are so stifled from regulation or, or, or whatever or taxation or in, mm. inflation and that sort of thing, then you're going to get into a zero-sum game and then it's going get, to get hairy. We really don't want
0: that. I also say this because I have the bias towards people making new stuff. I really do think humans having new ideas is the coolest thing in, in the known universe. Like there's just what other part, what other part of the universe apprehends the universe (laughs) around it? Yeah. Comes up with a goal, comes up with a way to achieve that goal and then changes that local part of the universe to, to do that. That, That's that's just wild.
1: Like we brought the, we brought the energetic force of the sun to the surface of the planet like in order to create nuclear fusion where yeah like you either require so much mass that you have to have something like the size of the sun like the gravitational forces like smashing the atoms into one another or you have to have explanatory knowledge in the form of like scientists and engineers building a laboratory like, in the Manhattan Project. Like, yeah. those are the
0: two places where nuclear fusion happens. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And that Iron Rand, for all of the obnoxiousness and missteps in the book, that she wrote a book celebrating that sort of problem-solving, I think is really- uh, I think exciting. worthwhile. So, yeah, I'd recommend this book. I'd, with the caveat that skip some stuff when you
1: get bored, like, skip, you know, like, skim-read the monologues and- um you know that sort of stuff. Like I fucking loved it. I thought it was. I thought it was magnificent book. I'm really glad yeah. I read it.
0: Yeah. I think. Did you have you read the Fountainhead? I've read parts of it.
1: I, I think. I, I wonder whether I, I oh, haven't read the whole okay. thing. I've read like half.
0: So I think I might have enjoyed this less than you two because I'd read the Fountainhead and the two were extremely similar. Like they're not the same, yeah. but they are. They're similar in that way. And so maybe I didn't. I didn't have that novelty as well of oh someone is writing about how great it is to have ideas. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Yeah,
1: I think I've read, I think I've read about half. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm extremely bad at finishing fiction books. Like, I think literally, like, the last couple of years, the only fiction books I've finished are, like, the ones for the show. <laughs> Atlas Shrugged. Atlas Shrugged and F. Gardner. <laughs> <laughs> Call of like the
0: Crocodile. 1200-page novel is one of the few that you managed to Yeah, finish. this is, like, good. It's good for accountability. Look, it's I get that. that is in itself a good review. It's good for accountability. If if that says anything about how much you liked this book. And like, hey,
1: fucking if you if you don't fucking want to read it and you've just listened to this entire podcast, like I mean, like, to be honest, like, we're better than Ayn Rand. We're way fucking better than Ayn Rand. And I'm a fucking way I'm better a Giga Chad objectivist, so I can fucking say whatever I want and motherfuckers, <laughs> this was a piece. This was Atlas Shrugged was like a minor masterpiece and this here, this episode, this is uh this is this is culture shifting, this one
0: This is the epoch changing <laughs> piece of art
1: Where we just <laughs> r- the rag episode. on Ayn Rand's sexuality <laughs> kinks <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> No, her sexual kinks are one of the funniest bits of this book Those are, That's one of the parts that make me like it a lot more
1: Yeah, alright, well I, I don't have any other questions or anything else, add. I
0: don't have more to yeah, say Yeah, all right well i hope you guys enjoyed the episode leave we'll leave people with what's probably going to be like four hours of (laughs) talk
1: side that or 40 hours of reading the book (laughs) all right yeah actually it's pretty, pretty pretty all right see you guys